Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? No time for niceties. I know. We have uh, a lot of stuff to get to because this is... Uh, well, I've got Oscar Fever, for one thing. I can tell. Yeah, it's it's right around the corner. Um, well, you know what? I've got Mardi Gras Fever, but I've... Okay. It, it's Oscar Fever is going to be right behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can kind of... Like, I have Mardi Gras Fever, but I can feel that tickle in my throat. That yeah, you know, yeah. You know when you know you're going to get Oscar Fever? Yeah, you like you're getting it. over a flu, and then, uh, you know what? My throat's a little raspy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh... <laughs> Yeah, we had time for that. But, but uh, uh, you know, if you maybe uh, you're a new-ish listener, not used to our style, we uh, like to spend the first few months, or the first couple months, I guess, of the year talking about the past year. That's why you've noticed we've done all these episodes, you know, the Oscar nominees or our, like, stuff that fell between the cracks, whatever we mm-hmm. decided to call that episode. Whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, all these episodes, uh, you know, and talking about whether or not 2011 was a good year. Uh, so this is the culmination of that um, when we do our best of the year. And next week will be the disappointing denouement when we talk about the Oscars. By the way, I, even now, I have never been comfortable with saying best because I look at my list and I do not think these are the best movies of the year. They're these are fav- my favorites. Okay. Um, noted. Uh but anyway, we're not going to do anything up top. Like we're just going to get into the topic, except for we do want to mention one thing. That's right. Um, which is, and we'll mention it correctly. Yes, which is tweakedaudio.com, where you can go and uh, we got s- since our last episode, we got our uh, some samples. Yeah, and I am loving these earbuds. That I, like I seriously, I feel bad. Like I feel like I'm a pitch man right now. When I, when I, really I hear when I hear Mike Schmidt talk about it i just assume he's being mike uh-huh. and just exaggerating just being so hyperbolic that it can't possibly be true and making a joke out of having a sponsor uh-huh. someone willing to give him money he seems to find funny but um yeah and I, so i thought well they're earbuds how good can they be then i started using them <laughs> pretty good yeah like really i didn't understand them. what professional quality meant and then i started listening i was like wow I actually can get behind these, and it's going to. Sa- I'm going to sound like a total shill yeah. on the podcast. But, ladies and gentlemen, I stand behind our sponsor. Yeah, it's like um, it's like I was listening to uh, cassettes, and then now I'm listening to vinyl. Oh, okay. You know? Like it's a fuller, warmer sound. Do you know it, what I'm talking about? It, very much fuller. It, yeah, absolutely. It does. It does feel like. This may not be a. This may not sound like a ringing endorsement. It sounds like the voices are coming from inside my head. Uh-huh. Like it's just it. I don't know. It's very. It's very rich. It's not as hollow and sort of tinny sounding. Not that I had any problem with my earbuds before, but then I hear these, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I guess I was missing something. So, <laughs> yeah. So we won't be doing all this every week. I hope right. we we just are very pleasantly surprised that. Uh, these are as good. These are as advertised. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when I got the sample, I was like, "Oh, neat! All right, sure. I, yeah. I guess I'll use them." Yeah. And then we'll just talk about tweaked as we always do, and or one week. And uh, <laughs> but no. And then when it turned out to be okay, I was like, "This is going to be exciting slash ridiculous." Talking as positively about this product as we are. But yes. So yeah. Oh, and they're also slightly. I mean, not fully like. You know the Bose like noise canceling, where they are right. slightly noise canceling, which yeah. really helps for blocking out my coworkers. Uh, and I know work. that's something you say constantly. You just yeah. hate these people. I will sometimes 
at work not even be listening to anything and just put my earbuds in so people think I'm listening to something so they won't talk to me. That's what I used to do on the train in <laughs> Chicago. And uh, never worked, by the way. Because <laughs> if someone was willing to talk to me, I don't think they were going to be deterred by these thing, these little things in my ears. Uh, so anyway, if you want to experience the elation that we're experiencing right now with these new earbuds, you go to tweakedaudio.com. Uh, you, you, you pick out all the crazy great stuff you want, and you enter the offer code pretension at checkout, and you get uh, one-third off, 33, right. 33% off. And uh, Bruce over and, and, at Tweaked and, and Audio. we see a little bit of that. It helps us out. It, it helps yes. Bruce out. It'll help you out listening to whatever it is you like to listen to apart from Battleship Pretension. Your ears will thank you, but you won't be able to hear them because of the noise-canceling earbuds that are in them. It's very meta. Yeah. But uh, and, and we talked to Bruce, and he said he is uh, working on getting us a, a page like we were talking about last week. Yeah. He's working on it. Uh, and it, so that might be in the future. But yeah, as I guess right they're now, making some changes to their site, and they're yeah. going to wait until that's done to yeah. make any. Okay. So and there is a All banner right. for. So if you don't want to m- remember tweakedaudio.com, there's a banner on the web. Is that the called website. a banner? It's on the it's on the side. It's on the side. I guess I assumed a banner was across the top. It seems like it would be, but I think I think it's called a banner. Okay. I don't know. We're, I, would know. we're still sort of new to these things. Yeah. So. All right. Um. Oh, and also along the side are various other ads. And as I will say, as I said last week, and I'm not going to say this every week, but uh, those ads, here's the deal. I know that some people, as they've said, I just I just click through all of them. And I do appreciate that. I appreciate your support. Click on the ones that you are interested in. Yeah. And, and by the way, click on the ones that you're interested in. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, this is both uh, a... Uh, a plea for hey come on uh, just support us however you can that's fine but you know i mean do click on the ones yeah. <laughs> that you're interested in all right um this might be the earliest in the show that i've ever said this let's get into it shall we indeed so we, we are going to start uh, uh differently than past years because uh, i think in the past we've done our top 10 we've done a few honorable mentions um and then some other stuff we wanted to mention now we two weeks ago did the other stuff we wanted to mention in mm-hmm. a way. Um, so we're going to do our top ten. We're going to do five honorable mentions at the end. Um, I'll let you know now. So if we get to our number ones and there's still 20 minutes left, you know it's worth it to keep, keep listening. listening. Um, uh, but then what we're also going to do, this is going to be the uh, the amuse-bouche, the, uh, the appetizer here. Um, uh, we're going to start with uh, underrated, overrated, and worst. Okay. I say... I say we start with worst. Okay. Go ahead. What is your worst film of 2011? I go back and forth between these two films. One is a small film that no one knows about, but it is the worst film I've seen of the year. Uh Do I even bother talking about it? Like, it had a limited to not theatrical run. Uh It it did just show up on Netflix Watch Instant. There you go. So should I talk about it? If you think it's the worst, it is a horrendous film called Immigration Tango. This was, I saw this back at the beginning of last year when, I'll be honest, the studios giving us screenings were not big, and we got screenings to stuff that no one knew about. It wasn't on anybody's radar, certainly not ours. And so I, I would go into these kind of willing to cut, cut the film slack, knowing that it probably didn't have a high budget. So Immigration Tango is one of those, there is, man... It's, there is nothing worse than a comedy that is not funny, and but a comedy that thinks it is so damn original. I know what people are thinking, like, oh, 
Tyler's being, you know, uh, hyperbolic. Obviously, there are things worse than a comedy that's not funny. No, I think it's the worst thing in the world. It's pretty bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. look, I look, I get it. Genocide is bad, but at least genocide's not like laughing um, and being like, "Isn't this great?" So, immigration tango. It's basically just about these two couples who, due to uh, somebody needing to get his green card or whatever, these two couples uh, sort of like switch partners. You know, just for the sur- just for the surface of things, uh, so that this guy can get his green card and all that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, David, uh-huh. hijinks ensue, uh-huh. and it's just there's a cu- you know what I did chuckle once, uh-huh. and it was purely a function of an actor doing something kind of selling the line that is uh-huh. not good, but the rest of it is just so. I don't I don't mind predictability, but it's predictability mixed with it's predictable all the way down the line character arc punchlines awful terrible but you kind of do need to see it okay yeah well speaking of predictable my worst film of the year is a lot of people's worst film of the year and that is jack and jill oh okay that's right Uh, i i I, for a minute i was like i thought he was going to say sucker punch but he mentioned that a couple weeks ago yeah no it's sucker punch is um there are there are a, a number of films below sucker punch you know what's below sucker punch what's that shame Oh, wow. Uh, you know what else? Your Highness, Below oh, Sucker Punch. Yeah, all right. But there's nothing on my list below Jack and Jill. It was the least the least enjoyable, the least pleasant uh, movie-going experience of 2011 uh, for me. It um, made me uh, concerned for the society and the country that I live in, mm-hmm. that this sort of thing could even be made. Um, it is assaultively unfunny and um, uh, just grotesque. Ooh, I that's think. a good one. In, in, uh, in, in, I guess, I mean, there are good movies that are grotesque, but not in this way. Just grotesque and banal at the same time. Wow, that's an achievement. Um, and, and just uh, offensively unfunny. Let me ask you this. Every review I've read, of course, terrible, um, with a couple of exceptions. Um, However, almost all of them say Al Pacino is very good, and if the film had sort of followed his absurd, over-the-top lead, it might have been a much better film. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, or are people giving him something of a pass? I think they're giving him something of a pass. He does does leap into the material, and when he's... When he's allowed, he's funny, but mostly he's, I mean, the script is just so bad. Okay. He does have that ability. Like, when you and I saw Gigli, like, he and Christopher Walken, like, oh, yeah. were great. Uh, the movie just comes alive yeah. at that point. Okay. All right. Um, let's do, let's do underrated. Let's go, let's okay. go positive now. Uh, this, as, yeah, I'll, I'll rush through this because I want to spend a little bit of time on my overrated film. Um, okay. This one wasn't, isn't necessarily underrated so much as it is just under talked about. Um, it, the film got mine's like that too, perfectly fine reviews, um, if not positive reviews, but like no one talked about it, and that is uh, Jane Eyre. Oh yeah, which is a movie that uh, you first told me about, and it has the as the lead actress. Don't remember her name, Mia Vashikovska. Oh, boy, I'm not still don't know it, but uh, wonderful performances all around. Michael Fassbender in it, is in it, and this role got swallowed up by all the other roles that he was in, but he yeah. was 
legitimately great in it, and it just does such a such a wonderful job of of creating a sense of time and place. And I'm a big fan of when, I mean, this is the what like the umpteenth adaptation of Jane Eyre. Yeah. But it feels fresh because it's taking the material seriously and it's and there's an immediacy to it that it yeah. doesn't know like the characters don't know that they've been adapted many times. They don't know they're in a classic. They only know what they're living through right now. Yeah, and the film doesn't um feel like um it's it's it doesn't it it, it doesn't feel like it's a bunch of contemporary people dressed up these right. people even though uh director Kerry fukunaga uses a lot of um uh techniques that wouldn't have been possible or obviously filmmaking wasn't possible in jane Eyre times the hell you but say. um uh very of the moment uh techniques some of them yeah. a little uh hidden and you're involved enough in the film that you don't notice that mm-hmm. that he's uh doing some very interesting things with his camera um but uh even even though he does that it still really feels like uh, a whole a whole world uh, you know um i never even though i'm sure we must have been at some point i never felt like i was on a sound stage no not at all and that's the thing is with with films like that where you know it's a classic novel and and everyone loves it you've seen it a million times you just assume it's going to be stuffy it's going to be stagey and it's not going to bring anything new to it mm-hmm. and none of that applies to this film it there's a vibrancy to it and a real foreboding and it just much to my surprise i was invested for a good portion of it and it's just and again it got it got good reviews but just after a while people stop people stopped talking about it and i mm-hmm. feel like if it had come out 2 months ago people might have been talking about it in in terms of you know the oscars and such so it's a great movie go go see it uh, my most underrated film of the year is I think it is actually both underrated and underseen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's called My Piece of the Pie. It's a film by Cedric Klepisch, um that got almost no um, theatrical review. It was available on demand. I think was the main way that you uh, could have seen it. Um, and I think uh, a lot of critics, particularly the kind of critics I generally like. Um, are turned off by Cedric Kaplich because he's a little um, uh, he's a little knowing and uh, clever and sort of glossy in the way he tells his stories. Uh, his his other films um, that American audiences are most likely to know would be When the Cat's Away and La Berge Espagnole or The Spanish Apartment. Mm. Uh, um, I saw it. It was called La Berge Espagnole, but I yeah. guess some people refer to it as by its English name. Um, uh, but I, I think um, now I'm going to compare him, Cedric Kaplich, to someone. He's not as good as this director, okay. but another sort of very uh, glossy and overly clever director who was also able to make um, very smart, if not entirely subtle, uh, social uh, works is Preston Sturgis. Hmm. Now Cedric Kaplich is no Preston Sturgis. Uh, obviously, Preston Sturgis beats him you know 10 times out of 10 but he's uh his films are in that ballpark for me uh, that's what i see and then that's what i like my, my piece of the pie is a um sort of class warfare romantic comedy that is an anti-romantic comedy it's rather mean-spirited but also rather joyful at other times um and like a lot of films this year um uh that i, I you know i've talked about um 
uh, I don't know, uh, Attack the Block and Tower Heist and a lot of other things that I in- enjoyed this year, there is a pretty strong, uh, it, you know, the 99%ers versus the 1%ers mm. message. Very timely. And I think my piece of the pie uh, belongs up there uh, with that. Hmm. All right. Overrated. How about you go first? I went oh. first last time. I thought we were establishing that pattern for the entire show. Oh, we can do that. Episode. Oh, that's right, because we worked it out ahead of time. Right, right, okay, right. I'll go. Uh, yeah, that conversation we already had. I'm sorry. Jeez Louise. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk for a minute about this, because I've been wanting to talk about it for months. <laughs> okay. Okay. Overrated. Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese. I haven't seen it, so just go on. Okay. Oh, I will go on. Um, I'll give you the wrap-up signal in four minutes. Okay. Uh, fair enough. So... Here's the thing. I will preface with this. Uh, listeners know that I am a Christian, and uh, as a Christian who is into film and has a film podcast, it is often requested, suggested, nay, demanded that I constantly examine myself for bias. Constantly. Um, for example, and we haven't really mentioned this on the show, the kids are all right. Mm-hmm. I gave a number of reasons why I don't care for it. And then someone said, well, no, it doesn't matter what reasons you gave. The elephant in the room is that you're a Christian, so obviously that's why you didn't like it. Why didn't you bring that up? I didn't bring it up because it didn't play into why I didn't like it. Let me interrupt you. I said I wouldn't. Okay. Um, I think every person who does what we do, who gives their opinion, you know, puts their opinion out there, should be... Uh, always ca- should always be cautious about so- self about bias. Mm-hmm. So the people who say that you need to particularly because you're a Christian need to uh, need to look at themselves. Uh, they need to quit casting the first stone. And I am, and I am, of course, I am, I am uh, simplifying their their argument a little bit. But it does come out to that that just if if people didn't know that about me, they would have. I think just would have taken what I said mm-hmm. at face value. Um, and so that's neither here nor there. But the the thing is, having done that, and now having trained myself to really be looking into personal bias, I now can't stop it, and it has it is now started to spread over things that aren't merely my faith or my political beliefs. Hugo is a film that okay. I don't mean to say that other people are wrong for liking it. It is a critic's dream. It is a film that looks at critics and says, you're right. You've always been right. Film preservation is right. Appreciation of older films is right. You're just so fucking right. <laughs> and I know, and I don't mean to say that it's, that it's like that, but I, I don't mean to say that that's the, the attitude on purpose. Because as we all know, Martin Scorsese has a love of older film. He has a love of film history. And this is his love letter to that. But that's the thing. His own bias, and then I think, I think critics' bias in general led everyone to compliment a film that is visually dazzling. And I should I should mention, I did not see it in 3D. You and I talked about this off mic, that I should have seen it in 3D because it was shot in 3D, and people mentioned that in that sense, it was really great. It was Scorsese working within, with a new, a new toolkit. But maybe it's because he was doing that and because he was working on something, a labor of love, quite literally. Who, who said to you that not seeing Hugo in 3D was like watching the red shoes in black and white? Was that Scott? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, and 
maybe i don't know red shoes wonderful use of technicolor but um so anyway uh so for any number of reasons i don't know what it is scorsese i would say his films often have pretty good scripts I'd say by and large, even the films, even lesser films of his that I'm not a, that we're not huge fans of, like The Departed, have have pretty good scripts. They're written okay. Hugo is very poorly written. It's uh, this this kid apparently loves movies. We don't find out about that until halfway into the film, and he always talks about like, oh yes, my father in law, my, my father, my, not my father in law, my father and I uh, used to go to movies all the time. We loved it so much. Oh okay. If the film's going to have flashbacks to his father, as it does, not very many, but if it does, how about this? Show us the show us them at the film uh, at the movies. <laughs> they don't. They never do. They only tell us. They don't show us, and it is a pivotal part of the film. And it's just it doesn't earn its nostalgia. It doesn't earn its sentimentality. There are a couple of wonderful moments, all of them having to do with George Melier, and. And there's a, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg from A Serious Man. He plays uh, a critic who discovers George Melier. Uh, he doesn't discover him, but he finds out he's still around, and he's excited for it. And and those two characters are way more dynamic than our hero, Hugo, who's a passive character, and everybody's way more interesting than he is. Uh, and it's just, it's just such a flawed film. And I know people are going to say that this is the same thing with Avatar, as with Avatar, where I have a problem with the script, but it's a visual marvel. Fair enough, except I expect more of Martin Scorsese. And I think that a lot of people who give this film, not necessarily give it a pass, but are w- they're much more on board with it, they're much more willing to love it, are people that were already predisposed to love it. And so I'm not saying that I know more than you, I just know that I am also predisposed to love it. And I didn't because it just didn't have what uh, what that film absolutely should have had. And... It's not a terrible film. I, I didn't say it was the worst film of the year. It's probably about halfway down my list. But it could have been, should have been so much better, and it is immensely overrated. All right. Now, uh, I mentioned I didn't see Hugo. I should tell, uh, I want to get a couple things out there. What I do at the end of the year is I sort of, I look at the list of things that I quote unquote should see, and the list of the things from the year that I wanted to see and haven't seen yet, and where the Venn diagram overlaps. That's what I pursue. So I didn't see Hugo mostly because certain critics that I like a lot, such as you, Tyler, and hey. uh, Tasha Robinson from the AV Club, um, didn't like it and didn't like it for reasons that made sense to me, and I thought, this doesn't seem like a priority to me. But uh, I do want to say before we get into the top ten, I still have my overrated, right. but um, the three films, there are three films that were in within that Venn diagram that I didn't get to see. Okay. Um, uh, Steve James, The Interrupters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss. And a Norwegian film called Tomboy that I oh, yeah. uh, was really into seeing. And The Interrupters, the thing... And, and that's anyway, It came out on DVD. I couldn't find it anywhere. And the video stores weren't carrying it. Uh, and it wasn't in Redbox. I don't know. What, it wasn't... And it's not on Watch Instantly, on demand. Anyway, what I did see is a film called Warrior. And I thought it was pretty bad. Um, and I saw it, you know, in advance of its opening. Um, so it, it just sort of slowly dawned on me over the next couple of weeks. Like people like this movie. Um, I kind of like the movie. I, I, I think, I think, um, just like in, uh, is it Gavin McConnor? Is that his, the director's name? Uh, Gavin O'Connor? Maybe Gavin O'Connor. I don't remember. Um, 
just like in in Miracle, which I think is a better film than this all around, but as in Miracle, the actual scenes of the sport happening are the best thing. If he could have found some like semi-experimental way to actually tell an entire story only with MMA matches, mm. that this would have been this would have been one of the top films of the year. I think for me, that would have been an awesome thing. But everything in between, with the exception of one scene that takes place on Joel Edgerton's character's lawn, mm-hmm. you and I talked about, uh, love that scene. Um, but with the exception of that scene, everything else uh, was false and hollow to me. And I know you're going to say, what about this scene? Yes, that scene too. I didn't like it. That one, I didn't like it. There are, like, there are certain scenes that people bring up, and one of them is, to me, an example of... Uh, the start, something I really hated about the the film. One thing that people bring up is when the brothers have their conversation on the beach in Atlantic City, and all I can think about is like, wait, in all of Atlantic City, these two happen to be walking the same beach. It's not like they called each other and met up there. Like, well, I I I was under the impression that Nick Nolte's character sort of told Joel Edgerton where he could find maybe Tom Hardy. Maybe I was way, too far gone by that beach. point. <laughs> yeah, and oh uh, yeah. He's on the beach. You know, the whole city's about uh, by the beach, right? Yeah, and yeah, but and no one else is around. It's like so stagey and false. It's well, everything just, that Jane Hare wasn't. Well, I just don't like the. I'm sorry because I've seen this and I and I kind of like it. Uh, I will say that scene. The reason I like it is because every every story beat is completely familiar. It's it couldn't mm-hmm. be more cliche, but. It, the film to me is a very good example of how with enough commitment you can actually overcome those things now one could say why not just do it slightly different at the you know at the base right but like i think it's directed really well i think it's acted well all around even though the character is incredibly stunning i, I want to say uh, i i know that people are going to disagree with me but and granted i haven't seen bronson i haven't seen this means war i'm not entirely <laughs> sold on on tom hardy he yet. is really good in bronson yeah, um, and, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to him as Bane. You know what, Bronson, for any number of reasons, sorry about that, for any number of reasons, Bronson is a lot like Chopper, in oh, that okay. it declared this guy's like, who the hell is this? And then Hollywood has not done the right, thing the right with things him. with him. Eric yeah. Bann has got a couple of good roles here and there, but nothing oh, but compared really, to that. Yeah, the thing, like, I've talked on the show before, like, Hollywood so completely misunderstands Eric Bannis' talents. You know what? In uh, he might have been best used in Funny People, which I haven't seen, and he's quite a, uh, humorous. In. Yeah, and that's the thing. The, the, yes, Chopper is a. We're off topic here, but Chopper is a is a badass. Yes, he's a big, strong, burly badass, but he's fucking hilarious. Yeah, and he gets cast in all these, you know, you know, your uh, Hulk or whatever. It's just these dour uh, movies. Yeah. You know, even like in 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 Black Hawk Down, he's he's fine, but it's like you're not. This guy's funny. And he does well in Munich. He does great in Munich, and he does great in... Um, oh, yeah, I do like Munich. Man, that's a dour one. Yeah. And I, and he he was very good in Hannah as well, but again, like, not cracking a smile. Yeah. Um, All right. But anyway, so, so Warrior, it's... I'm going to spend more time on Warrior than Hugo. I'm sorry. Uh, I do think it manages to exceed uh, its potential, but part of me, uh, the, the script's potential. Um, but at the same time, like, I found myself getting, you know caught up in the emotion of it but it's only when my brain is like mm. hey what about me yeah. oh nothing <laughs> for me okay and it also committed the crime the unforgivable crime of wasting kevin dunn's talents even lions for lambs 
made good, made good use of Kevin Dunn. I think he does okay, and I think he layers things onto that character that, like, look, I have to do this, but I don't want to. And I think that's – I don't think that's in the script. I think yeah. that's him specifically. I am hoping – this is also slightly off topic that, – that Luck, Luck, the show that's airing on HBO right now, mm-hmm. will be the thing that finally gives Kevin Dunn the, like – well, it's David Milch. The and critical respect that he deserves. He has the ability to give every actor on his series uh, a chance. Yeah. So. And Kevin Dunn is doing great work on there. So finally, drum roll. I won't bang on the table because we'll, uh, we'll get emails about it. Let's get into our top ten of the year. Okay. Number ten for Tyler is? Well, uh, you, you actually specified like the films that you weren't able to see. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I've got a few um, that I'm sure I th- – they sound like right up my alley. And uh, one is, of course, uh, A Separation, which, as I told you, I really want to see it. And I'll probably get to see it in the next week, but not in time right. for this. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get to see A Separation. I didn't see Project Nim. I didn't see Beginners. Um, and then I didn't see uh, The Future – um, I rented it, but I just didn't get a chance to watch it. And so, um, so I'm there's, entirely sure you would like it. I don't think I would either, but I wanted to see it because a lot of people really enjoy it. And so, um, and then the interrupters, I didn't get a chance to see that. Uh, and so, and I think there's maybe one or two others that I that I didn't get a chance to see that I think I might like. But those are the the really notable ones that I think probably would have. Uh, not probably, but possibly could have wound up uh, on my top ten. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Worthwhile. So, okay. Number 10 is a little scene film called Entrance. All right. Which uh, you and I got to see because it was at the uh, Los Angeles Film Festival. That's right. And, uh, and I think it's – I guess I'm going by your rules uh, on this because I think it only had a film festival run, but I'm not 100% sure because when I first saw it, it was before the film festival oh, okay. at a screening at the uh, silent movie theater here. And so it, uh, it was directed by Patrick Horvath. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's how you say his, his name. And uh, Dallas Hallam. And, H&H. Uh, oh, man, watch out. <laughs> I don't know why. but uh, And it's just very – and I don't want to say too much because after a certain point, you start to give stuff away. But it's about this uh, woman living in Los Angeles, and she's very lonely. Uh, not at all unusual to see a Los Angeles film about loneliness. and But there's also this kind of – Polanski-esque paranoia going on. But the key here is that it's not good merely because it's like a Polanski film. The way that it is shot is very naturalistic so that the paranoia could very well be totally in her mind. She, it could only be paranoia or there could actually be someone following her or whatever. And it's, it's this idea that she has nowhere to turn. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's not all in my mind... What do I do? Like that's where the that's where the suspense and where the horror comes from. And it's a great performance by uh, Susan Block, mm-hmm. and it's just a film that I I saw as a favor, and then loved, and it has remained on my top yeah. ten. And I um, just um, it's a uh, it's a, it's not just a I think it is a very good uh, Los Angeles film, mm-hmm. um, which is not that's not something that I say lightly actually, because um, so so many films are bad Los Angeles films. Um, but it's also just, uh, you know, any young sort of bohemian type person in a city um, who's alone in that city or single, I guess, will be able to relate to that, to this, um, that isolation. But it's also, 
I think an eye-opening film about um, what it's like to be a single woman in, the, in a city. Yeah. Uh, but we'll move on in a second. Uh, I hope it gets a wider release. I hope more people get the chance to see it because our audience would love it. Oh, Imagine, no question. Okay. All right. Film, art house geeks, listen to what I'm going to say here. Imagine if the Darndown brothers made a slasher film after having watched Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dumont. Wow, that, that was insufferable. I just want to punch <laughs> you right in the face. That, that's what that's what the film is, and um, it didn't it didn't uh, crack my list, but it is a it is a very good film. And it is it's my understanding that I don't know if this is I, I've been sort of uh, in touch with the uh, directors, and it's my understanding that it will be getting a DVD release sometime soon, maybe even in the next couple of months. Awesome. And uh, and so if you see it in any existing video stores. Uh, uh, yeah. Rent it because it's it's definitely uh, worth worth watching. All right, my number ten. Um, uh, you know, we, we we go from the uh, you know handheld gritty verite uh, style of entrance to one of the most meticulously uh, composed and aesthetically presented films of the year, and that's Vim Vender's documentary Pina, um, which. Uh, as I'm sure people know, is his 3D documentary about modern dance, uh, specifically, particularly uh, about Pina Bausch, um, uh, a, a modern dance choreographer who um, passed um, fairly recently. Uh, and, I mean, before they, while they had started making the film, she, you know, so it turned into sort of, it's more, it's a, it, it, the thing is, it's not about her, actually. It's a, it's, I guess it's a film about art, in general, because there's not very much. There's a little bit towards the beginning. There's not a lot of backstory. Not a lot. Not a lot about uh, about um, you know Mrs. Bausch's or should I say uh, Fraulein Bausch's life. Um, it's mostly just films of her dances, either recreated on stage or moved into uh, real life environments, anywhere from a park to a moving uh, um, monorail train going through. Uh, through the city and then throughout that are interviews um with uh with her her students and here you want a dose of pretentious nonsense okay here's the way the interviews are done they're just long shots of the people staring at the camera and the interview is in voiceover (laughs) you hear them talking but the person who's talking, you're seeing them, but they're just looking at the camera. I'd say that's pretentious, <laughs> but I kind of love them. Then, <laughs> it's, it's, it, uh, yeah, it's amazing, and it is. Um, it, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stay away from the word best, as you as you said, but it is my personal favorite 3D film of it I've ever seen. Are you? This is slightly off topic, but and though I don't like Hugo, and I didn't see it in 3D, um, are you excited about? The future of 3D, because critics for years have been talking about 3D as really just a ploy to to get more money out of ticket sales, and and that it really it muddies up the frame and the color isn't as good. But in this last year, last couple of years, I'd say, what with Avatar and Cave of Forgotten Dreams and Hugo and Tintin, like. Directors of note are starting to explore the possibilities mm-hmm. of 3D. Um, and, I mean, people are usually pretty complimentary, although I heard p- people say that, like, 1010 is not really great use of 3D. And some people said that even Cave of Forgotten Dreams I did, actually didn't. There are, there are shots in Cave of Forgotten Dreams that 
I, I wish it had been one of those movies like where it just said like now put on your 3D glasses and went, oh. went 3D and then for other stuff uh, it was there was a lot of eye strain for me. Really? Okay. And so, but are you excited? I mean, it sounds like he like Vin Vendors uses the 3D pretty well. Would you say he does? Yeah. And so, is this something that you're excited about, uh, or do you feel like the filmmakers will get tired of it and then? No, I am. I am excited about it. Okay, uh, and I think that's largely because of Pina. Really? Okay. Because yeah. as much as I do not like Avatar, mm-hmm. I I do not fault it at all for its use of 3D as yeah. a way of just enveloping you in this world. I actually like that quite a bit. So, and that's the film that for many, for myself, like so many others, sort of put 3D on the map artistically for me. Right. So, okay. All right. Number nine for you. Number nine for me. I watched last night. All right. Uh, in preparation for this, and sure enough, uh, there it is in my top ten. It is Abbas Kiorstami's, I don't know if that's how you say it. That sounds right. I try, I'm trying to get every letter of the name in there. Uh, <laughs> Abbas Kiorstami's certified copy with uh, Juliette Binoche. And boy, this is a fascinating film uh, because it's shot in a very straightforward manner, but it is something of a mind bender. And it's a film about art and a film about the audience's role in art. And you and I have talked a lot about subjectivity when, when watching a film or, or reading a book, like what you bring to it. And what, the, what a piece of art is about could be entirely on – it could be entirely based on like how you were feeling that day. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is – and I won't, I won't give away the twist, but about halfway through the film – the narrative takes a rather dramatic turn and you're not totally sure what happened. It could be nothing happened. It could be that the first half of the film isn't at all what you thought it was or the second half of the film isn't quite what you think it is. It's, and, and I'm sorry to speak in such vague terms, but I really don't want to give it away because you certainly won't see it coming. And then once it does, it actually happens in a surprisingly organic way because it's really just a story about these two characters uh, in which this, uh, this uh, British author comes to um, uh, Italy to you know, give lectures about his most recent book in which he discusses uh, the idea of copies. And that in the art world is like, no, the original is the best. But then he's making the argument that, well, I mean, copies, as far as the audience is concerned, as far as the, the viewer is concerned, a copy might as well be good as the, as good as the original. And if it, if it evokes the same emotion, what does it really matter? Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting – so the film starts with that and it's very interesting. But then the film starts to sort of test that theory in itself – and it's just uh, it's just really fascinating. It's done with and it's very naturalistic, and and you know it's much in the same way as as Entrance. I like the idea of a film that is sort of at its core experimental, but is done in a surprisingly realistic way. Much as Entrance is a horror movie that just you don't totally realize is a horror movie for a while because it just seems like a just sort of a gritty drama. Uh, Certified copy doesn't really declare itself as a vaguely experimental film until an hour into it. Mm. 
and it happens so seamlessly that you're like, where am I? What, what just <laughs> happened? And it's, and it's just a film that I watched it late last night and then I couldn't go to sleep because I was so invigorated by it and I was so, I don't know, I just, it, it gave me energy. And every once in a while, a movie will just make me happy to be alive and excited to be thinking about it. So Certified Copy is one of those. Number nine for me is another documentary. My, my 10, 9, and 8 are documentaries. So that's now you can start getting your mind working about what my number 8 is. So a documentary be. is not good enough for the top seven? Is that what you're talking uh, about? Apparently not. Right. Um, but uh, my number nine is a documentary that, um, you know, if it weren't already in my top 10, it might have ended up being my underrated or, or at least underseen because this is another one. Um, I saw it because we got a screener sent to us i'd never heard of it none of the other writers wanted it a lot of other times i end up writing the stuff that none of the other writers want to because i don't think any of us had heard of it and, and here it is in my top 10 uh it is klitschko okay. directed by sebastian Danehart. it's a documentary about uh vitaly and vladimir klitschko who are two brothers who box professionally very similar to Warrior. It sounds a lot like Warrior to me. Um, but they're not at all estranged or, mm. or anything like that. They I mean they have their they had their squabbles and whatnot. Um, but a couple of things I want to say about it. It's not just a boxing documentary. It's it, you know these people, uh, these brothers, you know, grew up in Chernobyl. Their father worked cleanup after the Chernobyl, uh, you know, the the meltdown and his. Uh, it was sick because of it and they lived behind the iron curtain they were at the perfect not only age but also uh i guess development of their fame when the iron curtain fell mm-hmm. when you, you know and um and and they were exposed to capitalism as at an age when i think male uh males especially males from a poor bra- background are um, most likely to be tainted by it or just to be overwhelmed by it. Mm. Um, and maybe in some ways they are, maybe in some ways they aren't. It, it's, it's about all this stuff, but the other, and that's the first thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say that really makes it in the top 10 for me is that, uh, it, I, I think when you think of documentary, you think of things that are, um, I, I guess very sort of immediate, sort of like ground level kind of the. Uh, uh, I guess gritty is not, you know, it's an overused term, but mm. um, loose feeling, you know, like a Steve James, you know, and Hoop Dreams is is an amazing thing, um, as is Stevie. I haven't seen uh, the Interrupters as I, as I mentioned, but Klitschko is breathtakingly cinematic, hmm. um, and it, it. I mean, it has, you know, it, it opens with the with a the beginning of a fight, uh, not, not the actual fight, but like the, when the fighters walk in and there's like pyrotechnics and like lights moving all over the place. <laughs> and like, uh, it's beautifully presented and overwhelming. And, uh, the actual fight sequences themselves, the, it's, you know, I often complain about too much slow motion, but it's a beautiful use of slow motion. These are as cinematic as anything in, in raging bull or, or any of the hmm. great, um, uh, you know, non-documentary boxing films. Hmm. So that's my number nine. Right. Tyler, what is your number eight? Number eight uh, is Tom McCarthy's Win Win. Uh, much to my surprise, by the way, 
Yeah. Uh, when I... I shouldn't be surprised because I've loved his previous films. The Station Agent and The Visitor was my favorite movie of uh, a couple, a few years ago. And, um, but I remember seeing the trailer and it looked like a surprising, uh, much more conventional film than he usually makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looked like it had like, it was inspirational and all that like, and it is that, but it's about more than that. It's not merely about, uh, you know, this kid, he's a wrestler and he's with a sort of a surrogate family and him learning to get self-respect. It, it, it has that, but it's about so much more. And it's first off, just brilliantly written because Tom McCarthy's good at two things. Now, I realize that makes it sound like he's not good at more than that. But let's say this. He specializes and is great at two things as a writer specifically, which is creating characters that on the surface would seem eccentric and only movie-like. But when you, in the execution, and this includes not merely the performance, but also the the way they speak and the dialogue and their actions, they seem completely human. Their actions seem like something you would, like people you would know. And, uh, and with, Win-win, just the things that I thought about it going in, I was just like, man, this really looks like he's trying to go a bit more mainstream with things. And he really isn't. He he creates characters with slight eccentricities. And what I like is that rather than make it seem like, oh, wow, look how, look how oddball these characters are. It's almost like in in seeing how strange, not necessarily strange, but just how distinct these mm. characters are it helps us to realize like oh everyone's kind of like that it's not like why create if you'll pardon me why create a juno type world where everybody where where their uniqueness is put on them why not just create characters that much like anybody else are just unique everybody is unique in mm-hmm. a certain way and he seems to realize that and doesn't necessarily feel like he has to play it up if he if he's just true to the characters it will come out. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing he's good at is just creating distinct characters. The second thing is doing a wonderful job of telling stories about makeshift families. If you look at uh, the station agent, if you look at the visitor, it's about people who aren't necessarily family and maybe they don't even really start out as good friends. It usually starts in some kind of like, oh, well, I didn't mean for this to happen. And people just learning to connect with each other in a way that is incredibly meaningful. And specifically, uh, when Paul Giamatti and Amy Ryan, uh, when their character, uh, when when they bring in this troubled teenage kid, uh, and they feel so protective of him, and especially when dealing with his very troubled uh, mother, there's just a lot. There's just a lot going on there. It all seems very feasible, even though it all has kind of a Sort of a P.T. Anderson quality to it yeah. as far as the, like Magnolia, the, the connections. Um, it just, it really seems very organic and the relationships that form are so satisfying and so real and so raw. It just, I felt like I was part of it and I just was so, like, I, okay, like I was talking about with Warrior, my emotions led and then when I got my head involved, it all went away. <laughs> With win-win, my emotions were there, and then my 
my head as well. It's just like, in fact, the more I thought about it, the more I appreciated it. It's a film that I absolutely loved, and I didn't expect it to be as high as it was on my top ten, but the more I think about it, the more I love it. Win-win. Number eight for me, my third and final documentary of the day, is James Marsh's Project Nim. It is... um, uh, along with a film that will be in your honorable mentions, one of the two big documentaries of the year that I think explore what is innate in human nature by looking at how humans relate to animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the film you you will be talking about is, I think, a little more uh, affirmational. <laughs> I think, um, whereas Project Nim is a very upsetting and angering film. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it's it's not as uh, immediately tangible in its, um, I guess, uh, not propagandistic, but it's stirring the pot as, say, Inside Job from last year, which is mm-hmm. also a fantastic documentary, because it's about things that are more abstract. But I did, I did leave the theater after seeing Project Nim with a feeling of being angry at people, um, and and what a lot of people can do. Um, but then also, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of people in, in, uh, the film that do, uh, you know, there aren't a lot. There are a couple of people in the film that do good things for Nim. I shouldn't say a lot because that's specifically not the point that, uh, this is essentially the story of this one chimp who, um, was taken from his mother when he was only a few weeks old to be part of this, weird new agey seventies hippy dippy, uh, social (laughs) experiment. Um, and, and then, you know, from there he moved to a different like, uh, sanctuary to another, it's basically about how, um, this chimp at every stage in his, of his life in one way or another, the people who were tasked with taking care of him managed to harm or neglect or, uh, otherwise just fuck him up Mm. it's i'm not even i'm not the type of person who finds chimps especially cute i think it's a little creepy how much they look like humans but um uh you you can't not feel for an animal when that's had this that's been this consistently victimized it sounds very unsettling i remember i i think you did you write a review of it yes i remember uh, i read through and i was like you know, I recognize that I will like this movie, but it seems quite heartbreaking. Well, let's move on then to your number seven. Okay. My number seven is James Gunn's Super. I don't know how the hell this thing wound up on my top <laughs> ten, except that I just love it so. Um, and I remember when you first told me about it, uh, there was a, like a clip from it at uh, Comic-Con, Comic-Con. 2010, yeah. Yeah, and so... And it sounded funny at the time, and it is a comedy, but it's also a very disturbing drama. Mm-hmm. And even that comedic clip that you were ta- telling about, oh yeah, it starts. It, that is like the film in Microcosm, in which uh, our hero, uh, played by Rain Wilson, is standing in line uh, for a movie, and then I think somebody uh, cuts in front of him, and he gets mad at him, and then the guy just sort of sort of brushes him off, and so he goes across the street, gets in his superhero outfit, and then comes back and hits the guy with a wrench. 
and like splits his forehead yeah in, like wide open yeah and that's very disturbing and the film is sort of like it's like spider-man by way of taxi driver i'm sure i'm not the first one to say that sort of thing but it's like yeah vigilantism probably it's kind of i don't know it's it's romanticized in our culture and because of comic books and movies and all that sort of thing. But when you think about it, a vigilante is somebody who is accountable only to themselves. And so if they start to think something's a good idea, it becomes a good idea. Like splitting somebody's head open that cut in line. Uh-huh. Like, But at the same time, there is a, there's a sweetness and and a nobility to the main character. And it's the, it's the film's ability to, to juggle, uh, comedy with drama, character study, satire topped off with brutal, brutal violence. Um, it's, it's ability to juggle all of those that makes it so fascinating and satisfying and memorable. Um, I know there are plenty of people that don't like the movie because they think it's too casual, um, in its attitude towards violence. Uh, I would say that is not the case. Uh, one of our main characters, uh, when you see what happens to this person, you'll, you, and, and you can tell what the, what the film's attitude is about that. You'll understand like, Oh, this is not cheering it on. This Mm -hmm. is not being like, Hey, isn't that something? It's a, it's an awful thing. And the film has no, I mean, any laugh that you that happened in the theater when I went to see Super during the uh, the wrench to the head scene, I mean, people started laughing and then they choked on their laughter. Not unlike, you know, Daniel Plainview's eventual triumph over uh, Eli in There Will Be Blood. It's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that's funny, and then you realize, oh shit, this this just got real. <laughs> and uh, and a wonderful performance by Rain Wilson and um, oh now I don't remember her name. Shoot, Liv Tyler. No, the Ellen other Page. one, Ellen Page, and Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just a really, really interesting and intriguing film that examines its subject without being totally condemning. It just, it's, it's a film that I, you, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this is a film that is very mature, but it is very mature about its subject matter. And as you and I often say, just because a film is examining a subject doesn't mean it can't be funny. And oh yeah, like examining something seriously. I don't know that we always say it just like that. We don't say it like that. <laughs> I didn't say verbatim. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we always talk about like, oh, just because a, a film is, is trying to seriously examine something, that doesn't mean you exclude humor. And this is a film that is a drama, comedy, satire, and it and it covers all of those incredibly well. It's just uh, I don't know. I just it stuck with me all year long, and uh, and I really love it. So, what is your number seven? Oh, uh, it, this is one I. Uh, this is the most recent edi- addition to the list because it just showed up uh, in the past two three weeks on uh, Netflix um, streaming. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I luckily got to see it streaming in HD on my HD TV. And this is, I'm telling you, that's the way to watch this film. It is, uh, I, I want to get the director's name right. I'm not sure that I will. Lech Vyevska is the director's name. The film is called The Mill and the Cross. It stars Rutger Hauer, Michael York, and Charlotte Rampling. Mm-hmm. Um, I use 
stars very loosely. They have pretty much all the spoken dialogue in the film. Uh, there is some incidental dialogue that you can't really make out that's more grunting and noise-making. Uh, but all the real chunks of dialogue come from them, but there's almost no dialogue in the film. What it, it what, what, what the film is, it's essentially uh, a, a piece of um, art analysis. Um, it, it's about um, the painting uh, The Road to Calvary, by and now I forgot to write down. I think Robert Bruegel the Elder is the Flemish painter's name, which um, is is a painting that de- depicts um, the sort of uh, you know uh, Jesus carrying the cross to uh, Calvary, which is f- that's the name of the hill. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, the <laughs> the only reason I know Calvary, by the way, even though I went to like Sunday school. Uh, you know, uh, as a Catholic kid, I never paid attention. I know Calvary because it's in an angel episode. <laughs> oh, jeez, <laughs> That's why I know. And it's also in um, Neil Stevenson's book, Cryptonomicon. Uh, anyway, it's called The Road to Calvary, and it depicts, you know, the crucifixion, essentially. But it also has a lot of... It also seems to take place in contemporary, for the times like the the 16th century or whatever, contemporary... Uh, Europe, you know, um, so it, clearly it's comparing the Inquisition that was ongoing then um, by the by the Spanish, comparing the Spanish to the Romans who crucified uh, Christ in in some other ways. Some very very of the moment political um, statements, but also um, uh, some very uh, uh, almost whimsical depictions of. Uh, daily life among the uh, the uh, I guess what we would now consider the working poor. I'm not sure what the word would be for that class uh, at that time and place. And so the film essentially takes place both inside and outside the painting itself. Um, and but even then, those boundaries aren't clearly defined. Sometimes we'll see something that clearly is taking place inside the painting, and then the camera will pan and we'll see Rutger Hauer as the painter painting it. Hmm. Um, but each e- each shot is framed to rep- to represent the style of the of the painting. There uh, there are even, there are some shots that are just still shots, um, but they're not still. They're just had they have everyone stand still and they're presented like a painting. But there's weird things because where you can see the leaves of glass of grass blowing, or you can see the horses like getting restless, you know, and and walking around a bit. Uh, it's um, it's it's uh, it's possibly the most uh, beautiful film of the year. It definitely has some hmm. uh, contenders that we'll talk about uh, two off the top of my head. That I think of, um, uh, but it's also uh, very heady stuff. Very very academic. Hmm. Um, and so yeah, I, I didn't the the Rutger Hauer plays the painter. Michael York plays, I guess, the sort of uh, patron. I, I, I guess of the arts, and then Charlotte Rampling plays a character in the painting. She plays Mary, the mother of of Jesus. Um, and Michael York has, if the film has a point to make or a thesis statement about um, about this painting or about art in general, and and the ability of of art that is populist in many ways to uh, 
engender uh, social change or progress. Uh, Michael York is this. He's not just a rich patron of the art. He's a believer in the arts and in. Um, you know, prog- progressive for the time values. And he, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly, but he says, uh, you know, uh, what you could do in a painting, you, you know, you can, you can stop time long enough to wrestle the senseless moment to the ground, speak its name to its face and break its power. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that's a powerful statement about art and that in addition to the beautiful presentation, that line might've been what secured it's the film spot on the top 10 for hmm. me. Yeah, and that's and that's a film that uh, I remember I had I had heard about and I had heard of, but I knew nothing about it, and it sounds really fascinating. Um, okay, so my number six is it still doing it? Yeah. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> I'm not going to cut that out by the way. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> uh, okay, number six is Margaret uh, by uh, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, whose uh, previous film You Can Count on Me is one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, at this point, if if you've heard of Margaret but you haven't seen it, chances are you have heard that it is six years old, mm-hmm. that it was on the shelf for a long time, that it was meant to be three hours and got cut down to a mere two and a half, uh, and that it was just it, – that it's a mess. That's probably what you've heard, if anything. And that's what I heard. Uh, go, but I, I had also heard that it was just this really, um, this really fascinating experience. And so I was very lucky to get the opportunity to go and I was rewarded by an amazingly complex film and one that it seems like every year for this episode and various other times during the year, I will talk about a film's lack of perfection being somehow an asset. Um, and Margaret Partially, maybe because it's the version I saw was not ideally the director's vision. It's you know still got uh, cut down. It probably could even be cut down more. But it, it just feels like the director had, he felt like he just had to make this movie, and so it's not perfect. It jumps around a little bit, and it just it it fe- there's a, there's a I know I've said uh, raw before, but there's a rawness to it, an emotional rawness that just implies that just uh, not necessarily like the rantings of a crazy man, but just somebody who needs to explore something. And the film was supposed to come out in 2005, so a mere four years after 9-11. And the film doesn't necessarily deal with that, but it deals with it in much the same way as, say, 25th Hour. Mm Mm-hmm. Where it is always there. The mood of it is always there. It's not about 9-11. But it is about this young girl named Margaret who is intelligent. She's sort of wise beyond her years, but she's still definitely a teenager. Played by Anna Paquin and I would venture to say, the best performance ever of her career. And I say that knowing full well she's going to continue to act. I think this is this is probably the the, the peak uh, artistically, and I know that sounds like an insult. It is amazing. If this film had gotten more of a push, she would be like a definite nominee, possibly winner. It is a shame that this film just kind of got. It's like it's been on the shelf for five years. Let's just get it out there, and that was it. And it is a, it is an absolute shame. But she's just sort of going along along in her life. She's not really that interested in things. And then a horrible accident occurs for which she was sort of 
responsible or rather co-responsible mm-hmm. with somebody. And, and she's just trying to figure out how she's supposed to deal with that. And it means trying to assign blame to other people while also accepting blame herself and trying to find justice and not knowing where to turn and just trying to, and then like, the grief that she feels bonds her together with people that she doesn't know that are also experiencing the grief in a much more direct way. And I just, I, I just recently, yeah. Okay. You can read my review of extremely loud and incredibly close, which is a film that talks about, that talks about, Oh, the way nine 11 brought all these people, brings all these people together in their grief. This film does that so much better because nobody is representative representative of anything. The film is too respectful to do that. Everybody is who they are. They are distinct, they are memorable, and they are all dealing with things in their own way. And it's just and like I said, it it, it jumps around a little bit. It probably could be cut down more, but I don't care because even the stuff that could be cut out, it's there. It's just part of I'm sorry to say this. It's it's a rich tapestry it's it all just helps to create this portrait of a city in mourning and a and a girl evolving Mm. and it's just it's written wonderfully i love kenneth lonergan i'm excited to see what he does next and i I have no doubt that i mean if it came to your city it came and went uh but it'll be coming out on dvd at some point and i remember i saw it with a friend of the show jason eakin and he and i talked about like it somehow it just feels wrong that you can just buy the movie on dvd when it comes (laughs) out like it just it's just like this isn't a movie you buy right um for the same reason that like i've got united 93 sitting over on my shelf not and i don't say that just because they're both 9-11 films but just it feels like it's bigger than something that can just be sitting on your shelf next to uh i don't know what's twister um (laughs) it wouldn't be sitting right next to twister but uh yeah so it's just a just a wonderful film that I, i i can't speak enough about and no matter how much i talk about it i'm not doing it justice all right. Well, I hope you guys uh, finally we're about to have a little bit of disagreement. Oh boy, on the show because my number six is a film I know you weren't crazy about. Okay, it's uh, Tomas Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. L- hold on, let me do my. Uh, I always think when I think of that that title, I think of film spotting because the way that Adam talks on the show is so perfect for Tomas Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Are you making fun of spell, film spotting? Now? No, I love film spotting. Tinker Taylor, soldier, spy. How's that? <laughs> no, I uh, I, lo- I love the show, but I do, I do think that title was just made for Adam to pronounce. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear Colin Marshall say it. <laughs> but the, that's a little bit of uh, levity uh, before we get into. I guess what's going to be a little bit of a disagreement. Not that you you didn't hate the film. No, not at all. And the more I thought about it, the more I think about it, the more I like it. But I don't. I don't think I love it. Um. Uh, it, it's the most cliched thing in the world to compare um, a kind of art that isn't music to music. It happens a lot. But um, there's. Uh, there's something, and I'm repeating myself from the movie journal write-up I did of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, even though the the soundtrack, which is my favorite score of the year, is kind of jazz-ish, or at least jazzy, um, 
that's not the kind of music I would compare this film to. It seems mm-hmm. like more of a, uh, a, a like a, a, a symphony in in some ways. In that it has uh, rhythms to it that go throughout, but the the story is told in movements in a way. You know, there's there's all these little sort of short stories within the film, which mm-hmm. probably I think are what make. Yeah, I haven't seen the six-hour miniseries, but that sort of thing play would play well in a television uh, mm-hmm. format, um, and could be detrimental to a, a movie telling. But Tomas Alvertsen finds the undercurrent, um, and never never lets go of it. And so while we're having this, uh, um, essentially short film about uh, Tom Hardy's character's story while he was abroad, that like. While it's happening, we don't yet know how, really how it ties into the main story uh, fully. Um, so he can spend time with this long other section and still feel like you're part of the same uh, um, the, the the same story and the the same general atmosphere. He's uh, Tomas Albertson, I think. Um, he. Uh, he manages to this is going to be a dumb contradictory statement but he's as controlled in his presence of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as say a David Cronenberg would be in one of his movies mm-hmm. but also feels so um pleasantly meandering at the same time mm. uh, anyway what what didn't you like about it uh i would say i would say the structure is that and, and you know some of it just has to do with my own expectations going in um it's based on a uh, uh john Lakari. That's why I've heard it. Okay, yeah. uh, it's based on a novel by him, and uh, and he also wrote the novel uh, "The Spy Who Came In from the Cold," which is a film that I absolutely love. And that film is much more of a character study uh, about uh, a tired, disillusioned spy played wonderfully by Richard Burton. And and I want I expected that, and that's sort of what I wanted. I like the idea of what. Sp- what spying actually is um, and just the, the emotional and physical toll it can take on a person. That's, that's what I wanted the film to be. And that's on me. Um, And the film becomes that. And that's the thing. Whenever the film stops to take its time on something, I love it. Even, even Tom Hardy's character who is introduced maybe uh, mere minutes before we are allowed to see a pretty extended sequence of what his life has been like abroad. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm okay with that because we are allowed that extended sequence. Every, and that's, that comes about maybe 45 to 50 minutes into the film. Up until then, it just, it jumps around so much. And I, I, I'm a fan of film noir. Being able to follow the plot is not necessarily important to me. As long as I, but the thing about a good film noir, and this, by the way, is why I never latched onto The Big Sleep, but always prefer Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. is that there's a strong sense of character throughout. And, that, and as long as we're on board with these characters, the plot can be whatever it needs to be. This, the, and, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy has plenty of good characters, but we are not allowed to see them as characters until the second half. Gary Oldman does a wonderful job, and, and his character is written very well. It's a very well-written film but i i have nothing i can latch on to his character doesn't even even though the story is being told sort of through him in that he's witnessing all of this and he's gathering the information i understand intellectually why that should work 
but I didn't find it satisfying. And then finally, when when he, he is declared as a character, as like a real character, where that we're allowed to spend time with, by that time the film is half over. See, and- I would I would disagree with you there about Gary Oldman. I, I okay. agree that. Um- Colin first character and Mark Strong's character, you don't get to know them as people until the end, but I think that's by design, because you're supposed to right. think of them just as the sort of chess pieces in this game, and then yeah. uh, eventually see them as people. But I I, I think there are um, things, and I think it's a film that would uh, be interesting to revisit. Uh, I've only seen it the once. But um, I, I felt intrigued by Gary Oldman's character uh, from, pretty much from the get-go. Oh, I was intrigued by him. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Uh, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to just the design of the character and the way he's played. I mean, you just see the way he sits there with his glasses and the way his hair, it just, you, you can just see that he's just constantly thinking. And I wish that I, and I, but the whole time I just felt like I wish the film could just slow down just a little bit. And I understand they live, these guys live in a hectic world. I get it but I wish it could slow down just a little bit or be a little bit longer and just give us a a few more minutes with each character so that I have something to lean on through the more difficult sequences. Again, it doesn't have to make sense. I don't care if it makes sense. I don't care. And it does make sense, by the way. At the end, it does. Yes. I mean, there are, yeah, there are definitely long stretches of that, of that movie where I felt like I was not fully understanding what was going on. And and by the end, it made sense in a in such a way that um, uh, accounted for how I and and, and uh, made up for how I felt, or at least made it justified. I yeah. guess is how I felt. And the, unlike and something like um, the Descendants from this year, which is a movie I didn't. Not that it has a twisty, turny plot, mm-hmm. but um, the things it reveals about its characters toward the end might explain the uh, the behavior at the beginning, mm-hmm. but didn't don't justify it. If that makes sense. Whereas I think, I think Tinker Taylor did. And I and I think it's. The last half gave me plenty to latch on to as far as character. And I know that a film shouldn't only be character. But when it reveals itself to sort of be a character piece, it it made me long for that, for the whole film to be that. And so I found it to be overall unsatisfying. But as I've said, I'm sort of of the opinion that a film is about how it ends. And this the last half of this film I found incredibly satisfying and maybe... Maybe that's maybe maybe that's okay. Maybe the f- the first half is all about gathering information, gathering information, and the more information is gathered, now we can process it, take our time, and figure it all out, much like the main character. And like I said, intellectually, I understand why that works, but I had a hard time latching onto it. It should also be noted I was in the middle of a terrible cold. When this was happening, and so I, I have no doubt that I might it might benefit me to see it again. Yeah. Well, I'll. Um, but it's not a bad movie. I don't mean to say that I. Well, hate yeah, it. I, it's my film, so I'll have the last. Okay. Not my film. It's my pick, so I'll yeah. have the last word. Um. Uh. I, if what we're saying, if you haven't seen it, maybe if what we're saying makes it sound, um, just impossibly uh, dense and and and. Uh, cerebral it is mm-hmm. all those things but remember this is the guy who made let the right one in and there is uh, a sense of um pulpy excitement to certain sequences of the film like mm-hmm. certain things g- given how austere some so much of the presentation is certain things get way bloodier than you expect them to be yeah 
Um, and then there's a thing I, I talking about the guy in the bathtub, right? That's one of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's uh, and then there's one thing I also mentioned in my when I when I wrote about it in my movie journal post uh, a scene that takes place on the tarmac uh, of a, a sort of private airport mm-hmm. with a plane landing behind Gary Oldman and um, who is that with him in that scene? I don't remember. Anyway. He he um, was good performance, but yeah. an actor that. Yeah, actually, I don't know. Um, the plane lands behind them, and then throughout the entire conversation is taxing toward them. And he's shooting it with a telephoto lens, so it looks like it's right on top of them. Mm-hmm. And there's no, it doesn't. That scene doesn't have to take place there entirely. I mean, I'm sure there are reasons, but I think he did it for fun, and because it seemed like a cool spy thing to do. Yeah, and I just love that the film has those touches in it as well. Yeah, it's definitely okay. worth seeing. Okay. So what is your number five? David. We're in the back half here. Yeah. Back, back nine. I will take your tinker, tailor, soldier, spy, uh-huh. and I will raise you a Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. <laughs> uh, because, uh, boy, oh boy, this film, I don't mean to keep saying this, but almost, almost every film in my top ten was a film that I was not expecting to love. It was one that I expected to appreciate, possibly like, but for the most part, whatever. Um, and Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, I didn't really know much about it, and uh, and I thought, yeah, sure, why not? I went and saw it with friends who said, hey, we're going to go see this. We want to go? And I thought, sure, why not? Um, and it, man, it took me by surprise because, and it's, oh, and it is a film debut by uh, Sean Durkin. Mm-hmm beautifully written and in like it's it's, it's, it by is, way, it's a feature debut future he, he's, yes. he's made shorts sorry yes yeah. uh, feature film debut and the style in which it is made requires such a sure hand and for those that don't know it's about a uh, young woman who was part of a cult um, a very kind of a small cult, uh, and she escapes and goes to stay with her sister and brother-in-law, but is just constantly haunted and paranoid about the cult coming for her. Mm-hmm. And so the film flashes back and forth in time. But what is wonderful, what I absolutely love, is that it is it is rare for a film to so thoroughly put you in the mindset of its main character. Because I say the film flashes back and forth, but you don't know immediately if we are in the I past yeah. or if we are where we are now. Like, y- And it does such a great job of evoking things. Like, for example, uh, some cult members, they go to rob somebody's house. And they start by throwing some little... Rocks, just little like, stones, clumps of dirt. Yeah. yeah, throwing them at the window. I think to either draw somebody to the window or just to see if anybody comes at all. So that's what they do. She knows this. So when she's staying at her uh, sister's house, she hears stuff against the window. But it's it's just like a tree branch. But at the same time, we know what they do. But the thing is, the first time we hear it, we don't know. Right. And I think what I really one thing. Uh, I'll address in a second why this isn't in my top ten because I have some very minor quibbles. I still think it's one of the uh, uh, better films of the year. But one thing I really love about it is that it it teases out information in a way that it's not like suspenseful, like we're waiting for information. Right. It's that 
every it seems like every act or so we uh, get some sort of big reveal that we didn't even know was coming and we realize whatever preconceptions we had about her or her time in the cult were underinformed and now mm-hmm. we we're thinking of it in a whole new way uh, it's it, and every new piece of information you get Either it's been foreshadowed, foreshadowed in some way, but you didn't even know it was foreshadowing. You can, I hate to, some would say, well, that's the essence of foreshadowing. Uh-huh. But like sometimes when something happens, you're like, mm, that's going to show up again. Um, not yeah. with this movie and other films, but this Especially one. when you're a sophisticated movie viewer like, uh, like one of us. Yeah, we got it worked out. But, uh, but with this, a minor detail that just seems to you to be like, oh, just a bit of the scenery or just showing what life is like in the cult, it shows, it'll show up again later and you realize how significant it was. Mm-hmm. And it just, it does it, it just has such a flow to it. And I mean, by the end of the film, I'm just so, I'm on the edge of my seat, even though there's really not that, I mean, there is, there is an act of violence, uh, but there's, it is just one of the tensest movies I've ever seen. Even when, Maybe especially when the character seems to be at her safest. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll address a couple things I had problems with, and then I'll okay. let you have the last word. Um, I think a couple of the transitions between present and flashback are a little too clever. Mm-hmm. Um like uh, you know, uh, there, I think one of the first ones she like is clearly sitting in a certain position, so that you can cut to her sitting in the same position, and it kind of just felt uh, staged. Um, but also, you mentioned it puts her puts us in her mind, and it does put us in her mind immediately. But I think the film's biggest flaw, and remember, I still think this is a fantastic film, but I don't think I came away understanding what about uh this character would uh about martha would bring her to this cult Uh, i guess i see with certainly the male characters uh the the male members of the cult um and and even one or two of the female members um uh i see what's in it for them i i think with her and with the other woman that she like sort of becomes is closest friends with, mm-hmm. I guess she's supposed to be her friend beforehand in the one way she got into the cult. I don't see what it is for them. Uh, I, would and, say and I would say that's a bit of a problem. And I think, I mean, it certainly doesn't spell it out, but if I had to guess, especially when you see the way she deals with her sister, mm-hmm. um, I would say an, an estranged father, mm-hmm. uh, who, and just feeling emotionally neglected. And then you come to a place where you are told, you're loved. You are accepted. Even if you make a mistake, we still love you. Just that having that just hit into your head enough times, like, and even like even uh, when they we show we see characters uh, who first they show up and they seem a little like mm, I'm not sure what I think about this, but there's a couple ideas that they find appealing, and then eventually the cult mentality kicks in, and the idea of Oh, I, I, I really, be- I really belong because everybody here is so friendly to me, and and so it's it really is. And John Hawks, by the way, as as the head of the cult, I think does a wonderful job of mm-hmm. of creating a character who is so he's so calm and casual that he's quite frightening, mm-hmm. and um, 
we were talking last week, right, about the funniest thing that happens yeah. in the movie. Okay, yeah. I won't and it. and and the funny and and that thing is funny, but it's also incredibly insidious. Yeah, and uh, and so I think I think you know I, I had to infer a lot of this, but I don't think it's. I mean, you hear about people who get involved in cults or really any any destructive thing, and you wonder why are they in this, and it's because. They felt a lacking somewhere else that this is fulfilling, and I would say, wanting love and acceptance and approval seems to be what she wants. Especially when, and I think it becomes very clear when you see the type of sister that she has, who, while she does care for her, is often very disapproving. Yeah, um, I've never been a big Sarah Paulson fan, but I like her. I here. loved her in this, and I think uh, earlier this year we both sort of laughed at who is uh, Hugh Dancy. Yeah, he's great. He's great, and. And I I do like I like what they do with his character because we are t- we are taught and we've come to just expect that uh, this is a, a bit of a spoiler I guess that like he's he's going to make advances on his sister in law because she's vulnerable she's attractive and they're alone in the boat together and here let me help you steer the boat yeah yeah like you want you want another beer yeah, yeah. want another like and you think like oh man this guy and she's like. No, he's just trying. He's trying to be a nice guy, and he's trying yeah, to. Be I think a good there might be more. something. I, I don't. I mean, I think maybe he obviously resists any urges that he might have, but I'm not going to say those urges don't exist. They, they but, might exist, but in I think they exist insofar as they would exist in anybody. Yeah, right. Right. Um, but I think him trying to be an uh, an accepting guy, trying to make it comfortable for her, comes first. But we've talked about all these supporting players and i think we haven't mentioned how great elizabeth olsen is because i think we just you just take it for granted yeah i mean it's yeah you need to fear is like an incredibly difficult thing to play and she plays it constantly but and and just somebody trying somebody trying to figure out what they're doing knowing like trying to get out of the cult mentality knowing that it's wrong but still it it's ingrained, and so she finds herself defending it while also knowing that it's wrong. And it's just uh, a really complex performance. It is sort of a shame that she was not nominated this year. She she probably could have been. All right. Number five for me um, is an- another film that got a – it was a in and out of theaters uh, here. Um, and I al- also like with um, – like with the mill and the cross, and with my piece of the pie, caught up with it on demand. Um, it's Bertrand Bonello's House of Pleasures. Uh, that is, I, that's the, I guess that's the American release name. It was, its original um, English title uh, was House of Tolerance, um, and then its French title is something in French. Uh, but in in any case, under you know. By any other name, uh, it is uh, the story of a group of uh, prostitutes living and working in a Parisian brothel in the, at the sort of um, turn of the 20th century. It starts in 1899 and, and goes into the year 1900, um, and it's uh, it, it's it's a it's a heavily episodic film. Um, kind of like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but it, uh, it's a lot less uh, uh, busy or choppy. You know, there are 
longer sections. Um, it's it it stays still for longer periods of time. Um, it almost never. There's only one sequence that takes place outside of the of the brothel. Um, well, I guess two if you count something that happens at the end, but that's a very uh, brief thing. Um, but it's it's a it's a film that is about the the twentieth century in a in a lot of ways. It's about the way that um, that commerce has changed and what it's done to people. Um, you know, uh, it, this was a, a somewhat controversial film. I'm told when it uh, debuted at at Cannes, um, and uh, because. Not only because it is, um, you know, exceedingly lascivious. <laughs> it's you know, the, it's a it's a whorehouse. There are naked women throughout the movie, um, and also the the brief in- instances of uh, violence that do occur are shockingly uh, brutal um, and hard to watch. Um, and so it got accused of uh, being, I guess sensationalistic or or what have you but i think another thing that is controversial i don't know that i entirely agree but it sort of very subtly makes the point uh or maybe not so subtly um, puts forth the idea that maybe um these uh, uh a prostitute in 1900 in paris had it better than um, a lower class working woman or or prostitute today because they had um, a support system it was it was if not legal it was tolerated hence the name house of tolerance um, and even if so, and and so you were largely largely protected and even if you something did happen uh, which it does in this film um, very early on I could even tell you what it is but uh it wouldn't be much of a spoiler but that's i'd rather than out um there's a there's a support system um and i don't know that that's actually the point that it's making i, I think you could maybe like i said you can make that case um but i really think what it's about is uh the dawn of a the dawn of a new century and with it a new new modes of commerce um and what they have uh, done to the people on both sides of the commerce equation. Hmm. Uh, it is also filled with um, some uh, startlingly beautiful, if um, uh, well, I'm not sure what the word is that I'm looking for. Uh, it's it not 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 grotesque, but um, bizarre images. Uh, one of which that happens at the end. I won't tell you what it is, because it would be kind of a spoiler, but also because if I told you what happens at the end, toward the end of this film, if I described the image to someone who hadn't seen the film, they would think it was either really stupid or really gross or both. But when you get there, after two hours of the film, uh, it's, uh, it is a thing of uh, unbelievable beauty. Hmm. Um, if... Uh, even if it might make you blush a little bit. <laughs> um, 
So that's uh, that's House of Pleasures. I um, do love the way you phrase things sometimes. Like you, you, I'd say between the two of us, you're probably the edgier of the two. But then the way you say the way you say stuff like it, it might make you blush a little bit. <laughs> it's just let me let me have one of these. Let me unwrap one of these hard candies. So um, all right, number four for you, David. I tell you what, we need to talk about. We need to talk about. We need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> okay. Because uh, uh, what do we need to say about it? That is good. Okay, I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah, it is a, and I think, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like it has uh, something in common with uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, in that it does such a thorough job of putting us in the mind of the main character, and I'm reluctant to say what happens because in the film it's not revealed until the end. But if you if you know. If you've read any summary of the film, you know the situation. Like, do you think I should go? Do you know the situation? Uh, I do, but I think if it doesn't come to the end, I think you should err on the side of not not spoiling it. uh, So this woman played by Tilda Swinton, um, she lives alone. She, her son is in uh, jail, uh, or what would you call that? Like juvie? Juvie. and so she's going to visit him, but you can see they have a terrible relationship. And and the film flashes back on on her life, and you see that their relationship has always been terrible, always. Um, and that she did not want to have a kid, and having the kid sort of ruined her life. And she never, she clearly never feels like she is a good mother. And whereas her husband, played by John C. Riley. Um, is uh, a very loving and doting father, and 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 the kid seems to react. Kevin seems to react very differently to his father than to his mother. He's very warm and loving to his father, but very cold to his mother, even though she is trying. And as you see the kid grow up, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say that it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like um, uh, the Omen. Because the kid has like dark hair and just is always narrowing his eyes at her and just does things just to make her mad and is and is often quite evil and I've heard people say it's kind of a horror movie about having children, but the kid is so over the top in the things that he does mm-hmm. that I, I'm starting about halfway through the film, maybe even like a quarter of the way th- through the film, I started to think. Well, we are seeing present day, and then we're seeing flashbacks. I wonder if we are seeing the way she remembers it. Not the way it was, but mm. the way she remembers it. And knowing who her son is now, which is somebody who has done something wrong and is in juvie, um, I wonder if she thinks back and sees him as a monster from day one. And whether he is or not, it doesn't really matter. She clearly sees him like that and but she also feels tremendously guilty for seeing her son that way and and for possibly even not wanting him in the first place and so so the film just i don't know it just does a really great job of i mean it's much like i guess yeah much like entrance much like martha marcy may marlene it's a film that really deals with paranoia and just and sort of the this may sound a little bad, but kind of the hell of living in a circumstance 
that you didn't want and is not going well for you and you can't really escape. Like, like she didn't want to be a mother, uh, but went ahead with it. And I think she probably finds it rewarding. She does go on to have uh, another kid that she does very well with. But you kind of get the feeling that that one maybe wasn't planned, but because she'd already had a kid and was already a mother and her life wasn't going to change that much, she was much more welcoming of it. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, so I don't know. It's did you just call the baby it? I guess I guess it's not a spoiler to say she has a daughter uh, <laughs> after that. So um, so yeah, it's so I, I think um, I don't know. I think the film just shows just the inescapability of it, and just the feeling like I'm living with a monster. He may not be a literal monster. He may not even be the monster that we're seeing. But the way she's thinking back on it, and the way she even just sees him. We can't help but go into how she saw the situation. But when we look at how the film has been put together, this is not this is not a horror movie. This is not a heightened reality. So why is this kid so heightened in the evil that he uh, that he does to his mother? And and that's when I I started to think that maybe we are seeing things very much from her perspective. And it's a wonder, wonderful performances all around. And Tilda Swinton uh, was is really wonderful she's very good at playing sort of that that frail nervous uh energy and uh and you really do i mean it is it is a film that it does kind of scare one away from parenthood i'll say that because part of me's like because already when i think about being a father i'm just like man i barely have the energy to deal with me and I don't have, I, I don't have any patience at all. For example, the people that were talking during, we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, <laughs> I had no patience for them. And so I wound, uh, so in spite of the fact that, uh, Josh, Jason, and myself all turned around at the same time and we wouldn't, we didn't mean to coordinate with each other and, uh, and like shushed them, uh, they continued to talk. And so I wound up just standing. It was, it was not a very full theater. So I just went, I stood up went to the back of the theater, sat down so that I could actually enjoy the film. Because <laughs> even when they weren't talking... I imagine the three of you all turning to the left at one time with like your elbows over the uh, over the back of the chair, uh, pulling down your sunglasses that you're wearing for some reason. <laughs> and blow, and taking uh, the cigarettes out yeah. of our mouths and blowing right. smoke in their face. Um, Did but, I say that when I told those kids to stop talking during Scott Pilgrim? No. They were like... 15-year-old kids yeah they were right behind me and i suddenly i turned into my dad for a second because they were talking and instead of being like hey could you stop or whatever i turned around and went hey knock it off (laughs) (laughs) um we're getting older david but uh but yeah and so yeah you're literally twice the age at the time you weren't but at this point you are twice the age of those kids (laughs) you could if things had gone wrong be their father (laughs) <laughs> and so um all right but yeah and so like it, it's a film it's sort of a cautionary tale but it is very much a, a a character piece but it does not sacrifice filmmaking style which a a character film can always run that risk have you seen Ratcatcher? no i haven't you should i i, I will lend you the dvd if you want please do yeah because it, it remains to this day i think one of the best debut features i've ever seen in my life and then it's lynn ramsey right uh-huh. and then uh, she did morvern keller morvern right? keller which i find to be not a not an entirely successful uh film okay. um but uh very compelling okay and definitely worth watching okay uh all right number four for me um 
speaking of not entirely successful, uh, this is a sophomore uh, film that uh, I'll just say what it is. It's Miranda July's The Future. And while I think it has more flaws in it than uh, Me and You and Everyone We Know, her her debut film from 2005, um, it's a much better achievement overall. Hmm. Uh, it, 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 uh, I, I, sort of uh, like, um, uh, in a different way, The Guard this year was a film that I, for the first 15 minutes or so, maybe in 20, I was like, I don't think I like this. But then mm-hmm. it, it won me over. And this one, in even bigger, better ways, I think this is a, a film of, whereas The Guard just becomes more and more fun, this is a film of immense beauty and insight. Um, but in the early going, it has it has maybe some of the uh, uh, the trite um, whimsy that you maybe come to expect from uh, uh, certain, I guess, white American indie directors. Um, and and it's it's uh, the things it's exploring aren't exactly new early on. The the idea that you know people uh, you know. Um, I guess uh, urbanites, you know, who uh, grow old without having families or whatever or remain in a certain stage of arrested development. Um, uh, you know, that sort of insight is not something that we haven't seen. Uh, mm-hmm. He, You know, is done even better in Young Adult this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the film gets progressively weirder as it goes on. Um it's also very funny throughout, but it becomes, it ends up in a crescendo of, I, I think, um, it's uh, upliftingly beautiful, but also it is uh, heartbreaking. You know, it's sort of, the way the way this film that has been so uh, uh, kooky in many ways um, ends up being so baldly honest about about people even in um you know ways that are metaphysical you know there are things that happen in this movie that can't happen in real life um you sort of you start at that 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 the building block that i was talking about those those the standard things about this like you know um little uh, indie bohemian couple uh and then you go oh wait the movie's about this and then you go oh it's about this oh my god it's about this and to the point where it just becomes so uh I've used the word overwhelming way too much on this episode, but it that that is the word that I uh, that I, I would use for it. It's um, it delights in its own use of cinema, but it takes those delightful moments and uses them to get to a very deep uh, sadness. I would, if I were going to compare it to something, I wouldn't say it's as gut wrenching, but uh, it has some things in common with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. Number three for you. Number three for me is Take Shelter. Okay. Number three for me. Now, I, I've talked about these sort of big, grand, you know, Pina and Mill on the Cross and, and The Future and House of Pleasures, these sort of like... Very ambitious films. Yeah, big cinematic pieces, you know, um, uh, that are uh, that are about grand ideas. Um my my number three is Andrew Hayes' Weekend, uh, a, a film that is about you know 
nothing nothing grand but something that would that would feel colossal in the moment um uh, as long as we're comparing films to other films um i think uh, there's a lot in common with uh lost in translation hmm. um in that the idea it's two people who get to spend a brief amount of time to, uh, with each other knowing there's a definite end date because um, one of those characters is moving out of the country at the you know uh, on Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the the immediacy of that and the and the and the inevitability of its end heightens the emotions. Um, there is one main difference between um, Lost in Translation and Weekend. In Lost in Translation, they don't even kiss. Right. Um, Weekend has uh, more than one graphic sex scene. <laughs> um, uh, they do. They do get down. Um, uh, but it, it's it, it's such a small film in so many ways, and I don't want that to sound like an insult. And I think if you know me, um, you know that I don't mean it that way. Uh, uh, the some the 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 best works of art can be you know the smallest because they can be so so uh pinpointedly insightful mm-hmm. you know I, I okay insight that's another word i'm gonna stop using for the rest of the podcast um for those who don't know this story is about um uh a a, a a guy who go he's goes to a friday night dinner with friends on his way home decides to stop off at uh a bar a gay bar he's a a, a gay gentleman and meets another uh gay gentleman and uh and they have a, a one night stand, mm-hmm. and then they start talking in the morning. And then our guy goes off to work, and then they're texting while he's at work. And they decide to meet up again after work and hang out again Saturday night. And they just spend uh, they just spend this weekend together. Um, and uh, you know what started as a, a as a one night stand uh, becomes a very a very deep and powerful connection um Mm. they're opening up to each other in 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 ways um they maybe wouldn't have if there were more of a prospect of a long-term thing you you know um or certainly if they had just ended it after the uh, after the night because they know they know there's an end um and uh it's also um Another thing I'm sort of seeing develop here that I hadn't thought about in this year with entrance and with few fu- with the future and with this it's uh single urban life uh particularly specifically single urban like white middle class where does weekend, lower middle uh, class. where's weekend take place um nottingham Just, england oh. uh, i can't i think it's nottingham it's a a city in like mid to northern england i'm not really I don't know my England geography all that. They're a pretty rough sheriff, I've come to understand. (laughs) What? Never mind. Okay. (laughs) The sheriff Uh, of Nottingham. Oh, uh, oh, oh, okay. Yes, yes. Um, Can't believe I had to explain my terrible, awful, (laughs) obvious joke to you. Uh, And, uh, well, I mean, you've uh, you've derailed me here. I'm sorry. uh, That's okay. It's, um, oh, yeah, okay. It, it, uh, it's an, it's a look into that that kind of life and um it uh the last thing i'll say is it um manages to be completely unconcerned with things like the fact that the characters are gay um or or the like recreational drug use or things that might be 
controversial. Otherwise, it um, treats them as commonplace. But in a way, by treating them as commonplace, commonplace it becomes even more about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, But it never becomes about that more than it's about two people. Um, even though things like their uh, orientation or their drug use are a part of who they are. You know, it's, it's I having uh, not seen the film, but I do remember you and I, maybe even in the first, like the first year of the show, we talked about um, films like, though I'm not a fan of The Kids Are All Right, there was one thing that I kind of liked about it, which was that, you know, it's about these two uh, women that are married to each other. And there is some, because of the, the story, there is some... Uh, talk about uh, their sexuality, but not a lot of attention is called to it because it is putting us in the reality of the characters, and in their in their lives, they're not just walking around being like, we're lesbians. That's who we are all the time. You know what I mean? It, yeah. And like, yeah. And like this, like it's it sounds like a story that just deals with human emotion. It's not like these guys just walking around being like, yeah, that's right. We're this. And it's like, well, yeah, you're just talking to somebody who else is like, somebody else who's like that. Right. So, and you and I talked about the idea of, you know, uh, films that that have homosexual characters like in lead roles and that's not the plot point. Now it plays into this, but no more than, than the sexuality of like a male and female character. Like the emotions are still the same. The idea of like settling down, finding someone to love. I don't know. I, I like the idea, like you said, of it not calling attention to it and in not doing so calling more attention to it. But it's not about that. It's about these characters. It's mm-hmm. it's specifically not trying to be about an issue of some sort. No. So it sounds like, uh, and I remember you you recommended it to me. And yeah, it I is think on, you'd like it. It is on Netflix. Yes, that's how I watch, watch it. Instant. It's a so. it's it's a brisk ninety minutes. It's uh... right after you get done watching uh, Immigration Tango, <laughs> and. Uh, the Mill and the Cross, head on over to Weekend for the weirdest trifecta of films you've ever seen. So um, You really should watch The Mill and the Cross, though. Oh, yeah. All right. Number two for you. Is the same number two as you. Yes. Which so is we'll, 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 this will be a double header here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. Yeah. And this, um, by the way, I mentioned that Mill and the Cross was a contender for most beautiful film of, of the year, just visually. Mm-hmm. I would say... The Tree of Life and even maybe House of Pleasures would round out that uh, hmm. trifecta as uh, most beautifully. Uh, yeah, most you know, I didn't mention films. I didn't mention Super, but I think it's up there too. <laughs> uh, as a joke, of course. But um, so Tree of Life. Now we talked about it a lot last week in discussing the the Oscar nominees and, and that sort of thing. So I don't want to say too much about it. Not that it de- it deserves to be spoken about for hours. Uh-huh. Much longer than the film actually is. Yeah. Um, as Bill Dwyer told us, it's two hours and 19 minutes. <laughs> and so it's, but it's such a, it's, by the time I saw it, there was already so much talk about it that I thought like, okay, I'm worried that this will not live up to what I've been hearing. Because people talked about how beautiful it was and, and, but also how in many ways it's the film that Malik has been working towards and that it just is, it sort of pays off what he's been trying to do uh, his whole career. And, uh, and so I went into it and just 
was mystified by it. Like I found myself, this doesn't happen very often. I mean, I'll, I'll well up from time to time in a movie, but it usually has to do with emotion. And there's plenty of emotion in the film, but there are times where I welled up due, due to the sheer beauty of what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had seen it on the big screen. I know that uh, because AMC does what it does, I might go see it. Oh, right. Uh, you know, I guess next Saturday. Oh, I guess that'll be my birthday. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> and so, uh, but it's just, it's just such a, amb- I would say ambitious, but that seems somehow cheap. It's not like it's not like Terrence Malick's like I'm gonna be I'm gonna do something important. It's more like he just just this this desire to understand things or at yeah. least comp or explore things just flows out of him. And I think um, ambitious movie it would give the wrong impression if someone hadn't seen it because it feels so effortless. It feels like yeah. um, the story of uh, the way that this boy's um, upbringing and the way his father treated him uh, affects who he's become who he becomes uh, whom he becomes as a man the fact that that's related to the creation of the universe and the dinosaurs yeah. isn't it, it's not a stretch in this film it's just natural like of course that's the next yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to explore this if we're exploring this that's the way it's presented and the fact that it's successful uh speaks to its um success and and as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I am a Christian, and people were one. I did get a couple emails here and there asking what I thought as a Christian of the film. Uh, there are plenty of Christians who do not care for it. Um, I'm obviously is, not one of those. Is it because of the dinosaurs? I'm asking honestly. Uh, no. Okay. Um, I, I know plenty of people of all of all uh, creeds I mean, who don't like the there dinosaurs. Are, there's the the type of Christians who think the Earth's only five thousand years old. And, oh and no, that, it's you know. not that. But you know, it's not. It's vaguely related to that, okay. And it, but not, in the sense that it's a film that contemplates God, uh-huh. but it never and it and it uses words like grace, uh-huh. nature, and grace, and the the two these two polar opposites. And uh, but it never it never really says. I think it says it once, but not as overtly as a lot of Christians think think it could. A lot of Christians think. Yeah, you had it right. Okay. Um, what, do they want it spoon-fed to them? Yeah. <laughs> they they want the word Jesus in there. They want they want a film that if it's going to... And there is... By the way, there is talk that uh, Terrence Malick is actually a Christian himself. I'd believe it. I would believe it, too. And, but, and the thing that... I don't want to turn this into me complaining about responses, because... That also seems almost everything talking about the film in general seems somehow cheap, uh, <laughs> but it's just one of those things. It's like if it, it's almost like they feel like, well, if he is a Christian and he's going to explore spirituality, then why does he not arrive where he has arrived in his own life? Why doesn't he arrive there in the film? Why doesn't he take us there? And it's just like, man, you can explore any, any aspect of your faith that you want. And incidentally, in my opinion, the thing that I love, the thing that I, not the only thing, but one of the things that I love about the film is that it explores the enormity of God. I mean, like, Christians, whether you, whether you believe in a literal or a figurative interpretation of Genesis, it is, the, the book of Genesis in general is often kind of breezed over. The idea of the creation story is breezed over, and the bigness of God is 
is like, oh, like the emphasis becomes so much on like the personal God that we sometimes forget. Yeah, he created the fucking universe. I'm sorry to <laughs> swear in the middle of talking about oh, no. all this God talk, but just like, and that's what I like. That's that's what I find so wonderful about the film is from the point of view of of there is a God and and all that. The same God who took the same level of care in creating this world and this galaxy. He cares just as much for this, not even just the fa- the earth, but the family and this boy in particular. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, why, yeah. that's why it's so seamless. Because it's uh, so much emphasis is put on one or the other. The God is too big to care about us or God is so... Is, is so so small that he only cares about us one-on-one and he's like our buddy. And it's just like, no, he can be both. And the film understands that. And I think to go to what you're saying, that's why it is so fluid between the two because Malik gives himself the freedom to explore that aspect of God and not turn it into, if you'll pardon me, a, a propaganda film for the, for Christianity. Right. He's, he's talking about something actually bigger than Christianity. Right. So, and I'm sorry to turn it only into a spiritual discussion because there's plenty of artistic things to talk about. But from a spiritual standpoint, that's what it meant to me. Yeah. And if you are a Christian who listens to this and you haven't seen the film or you saw the film and you didn't particularly like it for the reasons that I'm talking about, please give it another watch and try to look at it from a different point of view. Um, it's actually, I mean, there's no nothing wrong with talking about the spirituality in the film because it's the most spiritual film I think of the year. And, uh, to the point where again super <laughs> right, you know. right. um to to the point where i uh almost wonder why the opposite didn't happen why more um i guess uh atheists or more secular people didn't have a problem with how overtly spiritual the film is um but i think uh, obviously we'll move into the more um i guess technical aspects um uh, of it it's I think whatever you believe, it's a work of such immense beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'm just strike that word from the from the episode as well. Uh, I've said it too many times. It's a beautiful um, year, David. Yeah, between between this and uh, in the future, I mean that's that's a lot of beauty. And I, the, mill, the mill and the cross, beauty stuff, beautiful stuff, um, beauty stuff. <laughs> yeah, beauty stuff. Uh, but uh, what what I'm what I, what I really love about it, what I think makes it. Um, uh, even better than something like uh, the Thin Red Line is that it 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 is, and at times it becomes solely a sort of tone poem. Um, but uh, it has a, if not a narrative, then at least a character through line um, that I think makes it hang together as a, as a single piece in a way that, um, the thin red line for all its, um, uh, for all its, its, uh, treasures, uh, does not. Mm-hmm. Um, would you, would you, would you agree with that? That, that, that I mean, you're, um, you, you see, uh, I, I don't know the, is it Jack? Is that the kid's name? Um, I let's think say so, it's yeah. Jack. Uh, you see his relationship, um, not not just to his father, but to his brother, but his, his but, whole family, but to the world. Yeah. Um, it's informed by his father, but you see how it changes uh, over oh, yeah. over the film. Yeah, there's there's much more of an arc to 
I hope his name's Jack because I'm just going to say it. Uh, there's much more of an arc to his character than maybe any character in a Terrence Malick film. Like when I think of when I think of Days of Heaven, when I think of Badlands or a Thin Red Line, I think of characters who, and I don't say this as as a bad thing. I, I consider his films to be so, some kind of like living paintings, mm-hmm. and characters don't change in paintings. And so, I, I mean, this is a little topic. I, I think Sissy Spacek, has, her character has a pretty distinct arc in, in Badlands. I, I guess, I guess you would call it an arc, but yeah, I guess so. Like I, I see more that she's coming into her own, like she in coming into herself. Like when the film starts, she doesn't really know who she is so she might as well go along with this guy and then she figure then over the course of the film she figures out who she is and that is an arc yeah but it, it seems it, more like a self-realization we're, we're, we're so off topic but uh, uh unlike my minor complaint with martha martha marcy um uh badlands is a film that does make me understand why this young woman would uh go off with a dangerous guy like mm. kip um is it kip uh, anyway um and uh Anyway, that's beside the point. Back to Tree of Life. So, yeah, I do think there is uh, much more of an arc because you see, and it's, you know, on top of all this, it is a surprisingly effective coming-of-age film. And you see an innocent kid who just wants to have fun, but you then then you just see, you see him first discovering sexuality and, the, and like, the guilt and shame that can go with that. You see his resentment of his father but then as he starts to become a flawed person who who just wants to like hurt things the Mm -hmm. impulse that many of us if not all of us at some point have Mm -hmm. uh and in doing that he starts to understand his father more but you also see that his father as he gets older he changes a little bit and realizes who he is or who he has been and that he wants to be somebody different and it's just it, it the film just work. It works on every level, but completely on Terrence Malick's terms, and that's what mm-hmm. I. That's one of the things that I love about it. It is so uncompromising in the way it chooses to explore things. Right. I don't know. You got anything else to say? No, I think we we should move on. Okay. To your number one film of the year, and I'm bummed out because I'm going to be talking about this movie, and then you're going to talk about why it's bad. Um, and why, uh, why you hate it so much. I don't hate it. So, uh, my number one, and I'm, I've mentioned this for months, uh, and it hasn't changed is, uh, Bennett Miller's Moneyball. This is a film that, uh, I would, I would not say it is perfect. Uh, as, as I would say anything written by Aaron Sorkin, it's intelligent, but it might be at times a bit too easy. Mm hmm. Um, or di- uh, digestible. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And I think that Bennett Miller's direction, Bennett Miller, there's a second film, a second feature film. His first was Capote, which I loved. And I think that he manages to diffu- uh, diffuse that a little bit with the help of Brad Pitt. And with the help of Jonah Hill. I think. Jonah Hill is wonderful. Jonah Hill and Aaron Sorkin, it's like a, chocolate and peanut butter thing like you think yeah no that shouldn't work together yeah. and it's it's great to the 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 rigid uh syntax of aaron sorkin with the loose improvisation yeah. of of jonah hill uh works way better 
than it has any right to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you know, I, I don't know if you were, um, is it, we were talking about this or it was in an article we both read, but um, the part after they go to see, and uh, he and Brad Pitt go to see Philip Seymour Hoffman and then mm-hmm. give him some bad news and they leave. And the scene ends with Jonah Hill saying, do you want the door open or closed? That's Jonah Hill made that. Yeah. It's not in the script. I think it's, I think it's a special feature on the uh, Blu-ray. Oh, I, I, but, I, I um, didn't watch that. I had heard it somewhere else. Oh, okay. Maybe you told me. But, uh, and so I think it, it's a film that if it were directed, and by the way, like it went through so many different variations of the script. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually read in my capacity as an intern at a production company, I, I actually uh, read a version of the script several years ago. And I remember being like, this is good, but they need to do something about this Billy Bean character. Cause right now it's not so much that I can't relate to him. I'm fine with watching a character I can't relate to personally, but that he's just not relatable. The only thing he has is baseball and we don't know why. And there, there there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And but they so the film sort of colors in his motivations and I like the way they do that too. Well, let me talk about what I didn't like about it so that we so can, that we can end on a positive we can end note. On a positive. I was going to suggest that too. Good um, for you. I think uh, a couple things. I mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, that's a character that goes nowhere. It's, it's a uh, a character I liked spending time with and then sort of disappears, I guess, in, in the second half of the film, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think... Now, I don't know a lot about sabermetrics or or, or, um, or or these formulas that they used, but I'm certain it has to do with more than just on-base percentage, which is the only thing they talk about in the film. And it disappoints me that Aaron Sorkin seems like the kind of writer who would be interested in the complexities and in if trying, not invigorated by yes, them. and in and, and, and trying to make them understandable. You know, I mean, the think of um, the uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's live journal while he's creating Face Mash at the beginning of of the Social Network, mm. and him talking exactly about what he's doing to hack into the into the different houses, Facebooks, you know, and what mm. programs he's running, and it's fascinating. Mm. And so we know Aaron Sorkin can write like that. Why isn't sabermetrics explained a bit uh more fully and more richly my biggest problem though is that it has i'll glibly uh say that it has uh what i call entourage disease um it's obviously far better than entourage Mm -hmm. but the thing of like uh oh no something bad's gonna happen oh no it worked out for us oh no something bad's in you know exemplified by i don't think this is really uh, a spoiler uh, Jonah Hill's character is so terrified of the idea of having to tell a player that he's been cut or traded. Um, he talks about his terror. And then it comes up, and it happens, and it goes great. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that you will address this in a second because you, it speaks actually to what you like about the film, but that that sort, that sort of pattern, um, even though it's not as preposterous as on a show like Entourage, um, it did sort of train me as the film went on to not... Uh, not believe in the stakes. Okay, so um, so David has, you know, made his feelings known. Uh, <laughs> he hates the film, looks down on me mm-hmm. for liking it so much. Not disagreeing with any of this so far. Okay, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, it's. I will say that uh, the the sabermetrics thing, and I looked because you and I were talking about it. It's just like it's got to be more than this, mm-hmm. and admittedly, like that is ultimately the biggest thing on base percentage. Okay. But in looking into it more, cause, cause part of me is just like, man, that seems for all the, uh, equations, 
just for that one yeah, thing. Jonah Hill's character is like writing software. Yeah. And she's like, geez, man, come on. It seems like there's one equation and you just plug in the numbers. Uh, but a- according to the, this was just for my own edification. The equations come in where there are any number of variables depending on like who's been hurt, who's on base, probabilities, and that sort of thing. And everything, and it changes game to game. And that's why he needs to come up with software based on the team that he is playing and that sort of thing. And so it's, uh, but that's not addressed in the film. And I, I'm okay with that because the difference between uh, Social Network and Moneyball is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg thinks in code. Mm-hmm. Like that, where now Jonah Hill thinks in sabermetrics, but it's not about him. It is about uh, Billy Bean. And sabermetrics is to him a means to an end. So the end is what we see. And that is what's important. It, it is a film that, much to my surprise, is way more of a character study than I expected it to be. Um, and so I'm willing to go along with how, as I said before, he makes it all much more pal- uh, Sorkin makes it much more palatable and digestible, and I'm I'm okay with that in this case. If they had focused on Jonah Hill's character and then kind of smoothed everything over, then I'd be like, "Hey, wait a second! No, no, no! This guy's brilliant, and I want to know why he is brilliant." But with Billy Bean, he's he kind of has his guy for that, and he's just focused on the players and and convincing everybody of what he has to do. Um, with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, um, I do agree that he does go away and it feels, it smacks of a rewrite, mm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or cut scenes. Um, but part of me feels like, are we only saying that because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the character? You know what I mean? Like if it were played by just any other, if it was, let's say Nick Searcy, who plays one of the, uh, one of the right. guys, I don't know what the, one the of the scouts. Uh, scouts, thank you. Or or, or or Jack McGee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If one of those guys played Art Howe, we'd be like, hey, Nick Cersei, Jack McGee. That's what you and I would say. <laughs> right. But we would see the character for who he is, which is just an obstacle. A big obstacle. And I and but at the same time, you want an actor that is inherent that we inherently as the audience like and whose side we are on. And so you cast Philip Seymour Hoffman, and suddenly it's like, oh, shit, this is an obstacle. And also, Billy's not treating – Brad Pitt's not f- treating Philip Seymour Hoffman very well. I feel <laughs> like I, it, it does no, – I don't want they do, they do use it in a way to illustrate that Billy Bean is not a perfect uh, general mm-hmm. manager. Like, he makes major mistakes when dealing with people who disagree with him. And – I, f- I wound up feeling sorry for Art Howe, and I wonder if maybe – and I'm kind of okay with him sort of going away because in his disappearance, you do sort of see – and by the way, the scouts disappear roughly the same time. And at that, at that right. point, I feel like that's sort of representative of that style of baseball is going away. But you, the, the difference is you have the scene where the head scout has the – where it comes to a culmination between mm-hmm. him and Billy – this is what I'm talking about with the or what what I agree with when you said rewrite or something. Um, Art Howe is not a an obstacle that's overcome. And we never see the part where it's like we've bested that obstacle. It just goes away. 
I, they don't they don't overcome him. They go around him. And in that scene where they say this guy's cut that you are clinging to, we've cut him. And by the way, let's bring this guy in. Yeah, he's cut too. You want this door shut? <laughs> like it, it like that is their one could say overcoming. But I say they have rendered him irrelevant. And that to me is very sad. But it does. It, he he and the scouts are a good I think representation of the old the old world. And by making them go away, it becomes like they go away. Whereas, like the owner of another team, like th- these de- these decision makers who look at money and numbers, they come more to the forefront. And that is kind of a sad thing. But when we look at Billy's life story, mm-hmm. we see that well, this old world it may have been fun and romantic, and ma- it might even have worked. But it's not – it also could lead to a great deal of heartbreak for people. And so – And I love, by the way, um, uh, you and I were talking off mic and I talked about it with my co-host Sean on, the, on my uh, uh, other podcast. Um, the one scene of the one episode in Breaking Bad season four that has Jim Beaver in it. Oh, yeah. Casting an actor, a character like that great for a one scene thing, uh, Moneyball as the the other owner, the Red Sox owner. Yeah, Arliss um, Howard. Arliss Howard. Such a great choice to cast him. I love yeah. I love that actor, and it, I, I and love. I like the, that scene. Like it's, it's written really well. Yeah. Um, and uh, so as far as the uh, the stop start, you know, it's like I start to get invested. Okay, payoff. Uh, not even a payoff, but just kind of. I mean, there's there is a a payoff, but it's not what we expect. I was thinking about that when you when you said it to me, and I was like, that is true. It kind of does that. And then I, I might be giving them too much credit, but Bennett Miller, Aaron Sorkin. I don't think I am. I think, I mean, what is this? And the structure of the movie is different than a typical three act structure. It is structured like a season of sports. Uh, And when you think about it, like these are guys on a, on a 20 game winning streak, the very nature of a winning streak is, is we are all waiting for you to fail. <laughs> I mean, and just like, oh, you didn't fail this time? All right. Are you going to fail this time? No. Nope. What about now? Oh, you did. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it's such a, it, and it seems to understand that idea. It's, it's, a, it's a series of, we got to come up with it while we can. We got to do it. We just, every, every day, every game is a new challenge. We've overcome it. Okay, you now here's another one. And it's not that it's, and it's not that they're un- these little crises are unimportant. They add to the character. And like the example you were talking about, it is not, it, it winds up not being the, the crisis when that, that we think it's going to be and that Jonah Hill thinks it's going to be when he has to, uh, he's not firing the player, but he's, uh, he's telling them he got traded mm-hmm. and that he has to move. And what we get is because by this time, by the by the time the film starts, Billy Bean he's already well established, and we can't totally relate to him. We see this world mostly through Jonah Hill's eyes, mm-hmm. and what we hear is when if somebody's told, "Hey, you have to move. You have to. I know you got your family settled. You have to move now. See you later. <laughs> You're going to be playing under a di- in a different city with a different uniform as of tomorrow." Like to us, it's like holy shit, that's pretty rough. But then Brad Pitt says, "These are adults. They know." What, they know this is the life they chose. He doesn't say that. <laughs> um, 
These are men. They know how to deal with it. And But Jonah Hill just doesn't seem to believe him. And so when he finally says it and the guy says, all right, clearly the guy is not happy with it, but it's just the way it goes. And more and more, I, f- I feel like the film just brings us into Billy's world and into his mindset because we do see him as something of an asshole, kind of a prickly guy. But then you see... Oh, maybe because he's surrounded by these people who are unemotional, but often romantic about baseball. And and so as far as just the little crises, I feel like they're handled in a way that always adds to, char- to character. Because like I said, it's a character film first and foremost. It adds to character and it it gives us that stop and start. And every every new day could be the day you fail. But it isn't. Oh, and it it it's it always isn't until the day it is, and that's why when the film eventually, like when it has that, I guess this is a spoiler. Yeah. When when a baseball is caught, it's treated as here it is. It was it was bound to happen eventually, mm. and so. But that's that's those are all picky points for me. Um, what I really love is just ha- it as a portrait of obsession. And, and and misplaced obsession. But I guess one could say obsession is always misplaced because Billy feels that the only way he will ever be vindicated is if he, as he says, wins the last game of the season. That's the mm-hmm. only way he will be proven right. Right. And what's good about that scene uh, with Arliss Howard and then a, a really wonderful scene where uh, Jonah Hill shows him a bit of tape from uh, the minor leagues um, in which a large guy, I won't say it because <laughs> right, right. it's a really great scene yeah. um, and a good story. Um, he, he just has lost all perspective because he's focused on this one thing and only this one thing. And he has wanted vindication his whole life. And this is the only thing that will do it. And in doing so, he fails to realize that, oh, you've won. You won months ago. But at the same time, there's also the short-sighted people who say, well, you know, he's been proven wrong. But in the long run, everyone is doing what he did. And it's just – I just related to the character. I was related to how the film was made. Why are you smiling? Because I've been talking so long. <laughs> it's your job to give me the wrap-up sign. Uh, I – I I I just wanted because we were talking about how good we're doing on time, and I think we kind of we, we're the number we, one. We, we ate into it. I know, and that's why I didn't give you the wrap up. And that's why I wasn't expecting the wrap up sign, and that's yeah. why I was going to talk as much as I want. Okay. So, but and it's just and also I know it sounds weird. I I do sort of feel like I need to justify this being my number one. I I I, would, I can I can see that. Well, because you attacked it, and you uh, <laughs> right, you know. Um, so I guess that's that's basically it. It's just it's it is so much of what I look for in a film, but it doesn't sacrifice, which is character study. But like I've said with any number of the movies on on my top ten, it does not uh, sacrifice filmmaking uh, quality and technique. And I'm very excited to see that Bennett Miller has made another very good film, and I'm excited to see what he will continue to do as a director. I completely agree with that. Here we are at the final number one, my number one, your number three. Mm-hmm. And here's what I want to say about it. People, people know what it is, but in case they forgot. Uh, in a year where we had the great film Entrance, we had the great Ty West film The Innkeepers, mm-hmm. the best horror film of the year, and my favorite film of the year is Jeff Nichols' Take Shelter. 
uh, I don't think that um, it, you're going to, uh, when you, you know, take your copy of Take Shelter back in time to a blockbuster, it's not going to get put in the horror section. Right. But I think it it has all the pieces of uh, of a horror film. Um, it's um, certainly the most tense film of the year and maybe the most tense film of uh the past 10 years uh it, I mean, it's, it's not not often that i'm i have like a i'm sore from watching a film because mm-hmm. it's had me tensed up for so long um but then but uh that 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 tension is not is not cheap it's come by honestly mm-hmm. because it's not just about a bad horror film which would be like waiting for something to jump out at you or whatever there's uh existential tension and 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 dread you know not only because our lead character played by michael shannon uh might might be losing his mind if he's not losing his mind then the other option is that the end of the world is coming yeah but also um those things are really metaphorical for the tensions that are going on in his daily life and in the daily lives of Americans uh, all over the country right now, um, you know, with um, financial burdens and a feeling of insecurity in your job and, you know, being so, you know, clinging on to your job so strongly because uh, the idea of of losing it is um, unbearable, unthinkable, inconceivable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the other thing that is different from... Uh, a bad horror film um is how it you know despite the um grand sort of uh computer generated pyrotechnics at work in a lot of this of this film and it's not just the imagery by the way the the sound design and the sound effects mm-hmm. are uh really astounding did you see uh, saw it in a theater i did um yeah i uh i anyone who watches this film without a decent sound system um is missing part of uh, the experience yeah. the because he doesn't just have visual hallucinations he has uh auditory aural hallucinations aural i think yeah. hallucinations of of uh thunder that are as terrifying as anything else i've seen in a movie this year um but but the thing d- despite all these uh um this these flares uh Jeff Nichols makes it look so effortless, mm-hmm. the, the movie. Um, it, it's sort of uh, like a separation. I said the same thing, I think, about a separation. Each thing follows the next as a matter of course. It doesn't... Uh, you, you know, To use one of our phrases that we use here on the podcast, you never see the strings. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say so. It does feel very organic. Um, and there is a nice... Something that I've been saying all episode is there's a nice flow to it. Everything does seem to progress naturally. And mm-hmm. just like, like you said, a matter of course, of course that's the next thing that would right. happen. And I don't say that. And I don't mean to say that in a glib way, but yeah, it does seem. And, and there's just the dread. Like it seems another word that we use sometimes relentless. Like mm-hmm. it's like, it's progressing, but we really don't want it to. And what is it progressing towards? Oh, certain doom <laughs> <laughs> or not. And if it's not, that might even be worse. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, the film, uh, you know, there'll be no spoilers here, but it has, uh, I think, what 
is technically an ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. Although it's ambiguous in a way that once I made up my mind what happened in it, the the other possibility doesn't even exist for me anymore. Uh, I, I I I don't even consider it. Uh, it seems it seems. Uh, pretty clear once the pieces fell into place it's there's only one thing that makes sense mm. for me um uh, but that that certainty that i feel um doesn't it actually adds to the to the sadness uh, of the story um and that's the thing we haven't gotten at yet we've gotten it uh how 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 tense it is how dreadful in you know not not the connotative use of the word but literally full of dread um but it's also a very very sad film you know um you know we when we meet um kathy baker yeah um that's that's a sad scene and that's a sad scene there's there's a there's a shift uh, of sorts we meet kathy baker and that point we're sad looking at her mm-hmm. and then i think it's shortly after that we see ray mckinnon for the first oh, we only see he's only in one scene yeah um and suddenly it's uh now i forget michael shannon's character's name uh kurt curtis, curtis? it's curtis who's the sad one we're seeing him we, we've been seeing the film so much through his eyes that we're feeling like i said all the all all the all the dread all the need to you know the 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 drive to protect his family um and that thing and it's uh really in that one scene with ray mckinnon um and you think you know where the 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 camera goes around back by by ray mckinnon at that point we see the sadness that curtis has become and it's interesting uh i would say that yes it is very sad and specifically few things are more is it more sad or sadder I think sadder. Okay. Few things are sadder than resignation. Maybe it's more sad. I don't know. Okay. Um, look, it's sad is what I'm saying. <laughs> and and as as we see Michael Shannon go to visit his mother, and when we see him talk to his brother, and when we see the way he is distancing himself from his wife, we see him get become more and more resigned to one of the two outcomes. Either... Things are going bad, and the whole world's going to end. Or he's losing in his mind, and his world's going to end. And neither of those is a good outcome for him. But we just see slowly but surely with each with each day he's becoming more and more resigned to it, and he's not he's he stops fighting it a little bit more every day, and then finally he gets and and this is. It is a scary film. It is a sad film, but I find it to be tremendously hopeful. Um, because to me, more than anything, it is a film. And I, I'm going to be repeating what I said during our uh, about our uh, in our marriage episode. Um, it, it is a film about his marriage mm-hmm. um, and the idea that it, that he is not actually alone. He thought he was alone. He thought he could, he wanted to protect his wife by moving, uh, kind of sort of moving away from her, uh, at the, at the very least emotionally. But we see 
that she's no, she's not going to have that. She's not going anywhere. And we, I went in totally expecting the the character of the wife to be like he's going crazy. I don't want him to hurt my daughter. I don't want him to hurt me. I, you know what? I just can't be around this man anymore. And she's not. She loves him, and she doesn't want to go away from him. She wants to help him as much as she can. And it's just, uh, it was so meaningful for me. And that's why you mentioned the ending. I will not, uh, I will not uh, go into specifics about what mm-hmm. I think it is. When it comes to the ambiguity of the ending, it remind my reaction to it reminded me of my reaction to Lost. <laughs> so many people think, well, the ending could mean this, or it could mean this. But for me for whom the show was primarily about the relationships. You can speculate all you want. I don't care. I have a very definitive ending and not so much an ending, but outcome. Mm -hmm. And in the relationship between he and his wife, it is very definitive and I loved it and just and I found it to be very and I'm sorry it, it almost sounds I guess it's spoilery spoilery to say the emotion that I felt at the end of it but mm-hmm. I felt very hopeful and I just really felt like I had gotten to know both of these characters. I, I think I don't want to psychoanalyze you but I think you and I are the same in some ways and I think maybe your hopefulness is coming to it from I, I think because I think you're like me, you're the kind of person who fears that the people that you love are going to leave you. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, And to me, that's not what Curtis's fear is. Mm -hmm. His fear is that he won't be there for the people he loves. Right. Because of of what happened with his family Um, and because of what may be happening to him, uh, he thinks that he won't won't be able to, to, to protect them. Um, and again, the ending is ambiguous, and so I won't. Uh, we keep saying uh, we're not going to spoil the ending. Don't yeah. worry. Um, but maybe that's the spoiler. But <laughs> no definite ending, everybody. Um, but what uh, to me, what is uh, addressed um, in that ending is is that is that fear. Uh, mm-hmm. It's and well, I agree. It is it is great and hopeful that that she sticks with him and, ca- and cares for him. Um, that was never Curtis's fear to begin with. And so, I never thought it was his fear. It was my expectation right. and fear that like, and yes, like I think he was concerned about what he would do to them. He wouldn't be there for them. Not so much that they're going to leave me so much as, I mean, I'm sure if you were to ask him, he would say, I deserve to be left. I'm, I'm potentially dangerous. And them and, and his wife sticking by him, I think surprises him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it surprised me and, uh, cause I really thought this is, this was going to be a film where he wound up just driving everybody from him. Yeah. All right. Well, that's take shelter. That is the best film of the year. In my opinion, mm-hmm. yours is Moneyball. It's my favorite of the year. Oh, right. Your favorite of the year. Um, so we're going to real quick run down, um, uh, our list of honorable mentions, um, do you want to do your five and I do my five or do you want to go back and forth or I do my five, you do your five? How do you want to do this? Uh, you do your five okay. and then I'll do mine. Um, well, my uh, I'll, I'll just do them as if I'm continuing the list. Number 11 uh, for me is a separation. It, it got bumped at the last minute when uh, when I saw The Mill and the Cross. Um, 
And, you know, this goes back to our discussion about what a great year I think 2011 was because, I mean, a separation would be a contender for best film of the year in in a, in, in some years uh, for me. But uh, just just barely missed the cut. I talked about what I loved about it last week. Um, number 12 would be Martha Marcy May Marlene, we already talked about. Number number 13, um, <clears throat> and it pained me not to be able to include this because I love a good uh, um, fun uh bloody genre romp it's uh, joe cornish's attack the block is my number 13 one of the most fun movies of the year uh number 14 i think maybe a little bit underrated but maybe only by david cronenberg standards and that's uh, a dangerous method mm-hmm. um because i think people focused i think people maybe focused too much on what was not cronenbergian about it yeah. and didn't take the time to appreciate the strange ways in which it's actually very much a david cronenberg film and i haven't seen a dangerous method would you have you seen spider uh yeah is it is it close to that i know that that was sort of a mind-bending reality yeah thing, no i mean you don't a dangerous method you don't go inside the characters right. minds it's um you see crazy people but spider um explored a crazy person from a crazy person's point of view right whereas here you're seeing uh, I shouldn't say crazy. A mentally ill person. Mm-hmm. You're seeing them from the doctor's point of view. I guess either way, just uh, as far as pacing and and content, like I think people either expect the body horror or, most recently, the crazy violence right. of yeah. History of Violence and Eastern Promises. And I, I feel like what I've read about Dangerous Method its tone of not not its execution certainly, but its tone is much more similar to Spider, kind of languid and and it's not all that like the horror is not there on the screen. Yeah, it's more emotional. Yeah, it, but it's it's also I mean it's a Merchant Ivory type movie in a lot of ways hmm. uh, as well. You know, it's about you know sort of somewhat you're not if not globe hopping at least europe hopping they do go to america at one point you know and and costumes and and uh just that era anyway that's not the point point. and then my number 15 is michelle azanavicius's the artist mm-hmm. um it is i didn't see hugo but the artist is um everything to me that i guess people like about hugo except maybe less less literal it's not literally saying george Melies, rest you know restoration right. it's just um, because uh, I don't see it as an homage to silent films. I see it as sort of uh, I mean, I'll be a little tongue in cheek here, but sort of in an almost punk rock way. Let's boil it back down to its basis ba- basics and see what we can do with just pure cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was yeah, along with Attack the Block and uh, you know maybe The Guard. It was one of the more most fun <laughs> movies of the year for me. All right. All right, so my number eleven is, and it just got just got bumped out yesterday. Is uh, Margin Call, mm-hmm. and uh, I talked about it a little bit last week, so I won't go into it. But uh, we mentioned Aaron Sorkin making things a little easier mm-hmm. in Moneyball, and there's a little bit of that in Margin Call, but for the most part, it is a film about you know the housing crisis and Wall Street, and it just it just uses lingo, it uses things that I don't understand and it just says you need to keep up. And there are a couple, there are a couple characters who will be like, well, just tell me in layman's terms. And even the layman's terms are a little rough. And, uh, but I, and I will say, and it's a feature debut and I think it's directed expertly. And 
J.C. Chandor? Uh, yeah, Chandor, I think is okay. that's what I say. Um, and I'll say this. Uh, the cast is uniformly solid. It is the best character, best performances for years of Kevin Spacey, Paul Bettany, and Jeremy Irons. Like, it has been years since they've had characters this good, and all three of them hit it out of the park. Everyone in the film is good. But those three especially, it's been a long time since they've that, been this good. I knew that Paul Bettany was in it. Yeah. He's pretty solid. Yeah. Are there any women in it? Demi Moore. Oh, okay. So, and she's pretty good. Um, and I think she's a, a woman that I think is like a very, like very strong, both physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And you can see why she would be cast in Hold this on. film. Before we move on, I know we're rushing, but you did see Attack the Block and the Artist. Yeah. Real quick. I would just want to know what you... I'm not a huge fan of Attack the Block. There are certain things that I like. Uh, You mentioned the artist like boiling things down. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a hard time really, I I had a hard time rooting for any of the characters in Attack the Block. But the action was good. And I like the way they boiled down the aliens slash monsters. In that, look, the only thing that matters is that they've got giant teeth that will eat you. <laughs> so we're just going to boil them down to a black shape with teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of like that. It's just, it's kind of punk rock, as you say, <laughs> right. where it's just like, look, we don't have the money and we really don't have the inclination of coming up. All you care about is what can kill them, right? And what can kill them is the teeth. So it, they glow. How about that? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did like that aspect of it. And the artist... I've talked about it before. It's a it's a perfectly fine film. I can't really think any of anything I don't like about it. Um, I don't think about it much, but uh, but it's a very good movie, if not a great movie. And I think it really quite expertly uh, accomplishes its goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and great acting all around. Okay, so margin call. Uh, my number twelve is the documentary Buck. And this is the other one. When I talked about Project yeah. Nim, this is the other film I talked about. Uh, exploring human nature by the way humans relate to animals. Yeah. And just and also using animals as almost – and you'll, you'll find this, by the way, on like the dog whisperer. The <laughs> idea of the animals being an expression of who the people are. And so you actually will find people in the film that the, the guy Buck is saying – like is dealing with – just a crazy out of its mind horse and the woman who owns it he's like what what is going on in your life that you are not taking care of this horse everything good mm-hmm. that you are not taking care of this horse and it sounds judgmental although he is not a very judgmental guy and the woman who owns the horse just uh like has a breakdown it's like you're right i haven't been paying enough attention i haven't been doing what i'm supposed to be doing so it's like the cr- like the the animals are a reflection of the people's lives themselves. But the story of Buck is so sad, but he's also it's it's a it's also a very inspiring film that a guy who came from such a horrendous childhood could be such a calm and decent encouraging man. And boy man, it just I just love the film. Um Number 13 is The Descendants, okay, which um, is a film I liked a lot, specifically from a, uh, from a character standpoint. I think George Clooney's asked to do a lot of things that he doesn't usually do. I like the way the film, for the most part, allows each character to be who they are rather than just a device for the film. Um, I'd say specifically uh, like Robert Forrester. And even though he is an asshole who 
the film even allows him the time to grieve the way he's going to. Mm-hmm. And even uh, George Clooney's daughter's boyfriend, who on paper is just like, this character's ridiculous and I don't like him. But he's played as so delightful. <laughs> and uh, and I like that. Forster, I, by the way, has... There's a lot of funny lines, but the mm-hmm. funniest line in the movie is... I'm going to hit you. <laughs> yeah. And he says, he doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm going to hit you, and then takes a moment so that the kid can prepare himself. I'm going to hit you. Hit. <laughs> like, it happens right there. Um, but I, it's not a perfect film. I think it's probably the least of uh, Alexander Payne's films. Uh, I think it, man, it has some, it has a difficult time bringing all of its themes together, and that's, that's something that he usually does really well. Um, and also, I think it has some misguided narration. Um, Number uh, 14 is your favorite film, Drive, uh-huh. uh, which I absolutely see your problems with it. Um, well, I don't understand why you, of all people, have problems with it. As we've said before, you know what? You're being a structuralist and a formalist. Know, if you want you, to talk to this, you can speak to this, you can. You said, it's funny that I, I knew you were going to bring this up, and, I, and someone else came up with the exact words to describe Drive, except... She was writing a negative review of The Mill and the Cross. Oh, okay. As I often do after I see a movie, I look up some reviews. And uh, Carrie Rickey uh, from the Philadelphia, what's it, Inquirer? The Philadelphia News. I think, I think Inquirer, yeah. Um, her complaint about The Mill and the Cross is that it's photogenic but not cinematic. And I, in my head, I went, Carrie Rickey, you are wrong about The Mill and the Cross, but that is exactly how I feel about Drive. It's a series of pretty pictures. Um, but then in addition to that, I have some other problems that the, the, the characters, I don't think, and this is, this is glib. I don't think Nicholas Finning Refn realized he was making a comedy at some points. Like it's so, it's pretty funny times. Yeah. But it's, it, I can't tell if it's supposed to be or not. I think it probably is. It might also be the, the actors that he has cast, Mm -hmm. um, doing kind of some almost covertly incorporating some comedy into uh-huh. it i don't know uh i would say about drive what you often say about public enemies which is it it tries to it really tries to strip things down to a few basics and there are definite like there are character types more than characters and uh i don't find it to be an extremely satisfying film mm-hmm. but um and it's it's hard to relate to it but it does feel almost like an experiment to see how much how how much we can strip away and still have a movie, um, and uh, and there and I having watched it a second time maybe I think last week uh, I respond to a fair amount of it but of course I don't respond to it emotionally not that it not that it's asking me to but um, yeah it's it's a movie that I like but I certainly don't love um, but there are things that I love about it. I do love Albert Brooks. I think he does a really good job. Okay. I love the opening sequence. I love oh, yeah. and I love the music throughout. The music is oh wonderful. Um and then uh, number 15 is that's the thing is like my top 12 I stand by all day long. <laughs> but anything below that I have to give a qualified answer. And number 15 is Carnage, the uh, Roman Polanski film mm-hmm. which is incredibly funny. But it's incredibly funny, great performances all around. I forget that Jodie Foster has acted in comedy and can be quite funny, uh-huh. um, even when she's getting really shrill towards the end. Um, I was surprised that uh, Christoph Waltz 
could do what he did. Um, John C. Riley's a lot of fun. I do feel this, it's not Kate Winslet's fault. I do feel like of all the characters, she's the one given the least amount to do, except. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> and you, by the uh, way, you'll know it when you see. Yeah, um, um, you know, and I, I didn't love this film, but I think if I were to watch it again with lowered expectations and just watch it as um, a surprisingly funny film, I would, I would enjoy it. And I think I went in with lowered expectations based on what people had said, uh, and it does. And that's the thing is, you and I have talked about movies that uh, take place in one location and. It's possible to do that without the film feeling stagey. You know, yeah. like 12 Angry Men. Glengarry Glen Ross does not take place in one location, but American Buffalo does, and that doesn't often feel stagey to me. Mm-hmm. This really did, and it might have to do with the fact that, like, they're, they're really bending over backwards to make sure that it always stays in one place. Mm-hmm. Like, people leave, get to the ele- elevator, and then come back in. It's just like, I know you were based on a play, and I know this has to happen, yeah. but I just don't believe it. But that kind of – as comedy, that worked for me. It could work, yeah. All right. So well, – Okay. Uh, this might be our longest episode ever. We'll see. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, you can find us at battleshippretention.com. Normally I say what reviews we have coming out this week, but uh, swing and a miss. We got like nothing coming out uh, oh, this week. I'm going to start telling you more about what uh, DVD and Blu-ray reviews since they're going to get to be so many of those. Um, but still, there will always be uh, reviews of theatrical releases and um, home video releases and all sorts of other features and, and fun stuff at battleshipretention.com. You can also contact us there by emailing us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension and follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com or on iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review show Previously On at previouslyonshow.com. I don't think this is our longest episode. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.